Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. I don't always give content warnings. We tend to cover so much brutality. Uh, it often seems redundant here. And sometimes, honestly, I just forget. But today's episode is especially centered around extreme sexual violence on the level of the recent dating game killer. And we get into moments of brutality almost immediately. If you would like to bail now, you've been warned. On May 23rd, 1981, 26-year-old Linda Sutton was abducted near Wrigley Field in Chicago. Ten days later, her mutilated dead body was found, beaten, raped, both her breasts crudely amputated, possibly when she was still alive. More and more bodies began to turn up in similar conditions over the following 17 months, some of them sex workers with histories of hard drug use, others young women with no known history of hard drug use, women in quote-unquote normal jobs like real estate and finance. Chicago police had no idea who was committing these murders. With DNA testing still not an available tool at their disposal, and many of the victims' remains found in advanced states of decomposition, the leads were few and far between. Until an eyewitness came forward who clearly saw one of the Ripper crew members' faces, the harder police looked into these murders, the further away from arresting the Ripper crew they got, actually. The Windy City had just seen the arrest of John Wayne Gacy, Gacy a.k.a. Pogo the Killer Clown, when 29 bodies were discovered buried in or under Gacy's house in 1978. He'd be convicted for a total of 33 murders. Now, just three years later, it seemed like another similar, sexually motivated, sadistic serial killer was on the loose. In total, 18 women would be tortured, raped, and killed before police figured out that the killer was actually killers, plural. A group of heinous dirtbags, now known as the Ripper Crew, the violent moniker given to them inspired by the disturbing crimes of Jack the Ripper. Much like Jack the Ripper, the Ripper Crew's victims' bodies testified to the perpetrator's brutality and to their victims' extreme suffering before they died. Together, ringleader Robert, Robin Gecht and three young men often portrayed as his evil minions, Edward Spreister, Andy Cocorales, and Andy's brother Thomas Cocorales, where they would drive around the city and its suburbs in search of victims. And when they found the right young woman, whoever Robin was most turned on by, who wasn't also surrounded by a bunch of eyewitnesses, it seems, 
they would pounce. They would either lure her into Robin's van or simply abduct her by force before taking her to a remote area or a motel room where they'd torture, rape, and kill her, dump her body, then take one or both of her breasts back to Gek's apartment where a disgusting ritual would commence. In the attic above Robin's bedroom, in a makeshift satanic temple later discovered by investigators, Gek would read passages from the satanic Bible or other occult literature. He'd lead ritualistic chants before the crew's members would all masturbate onto or even into the breast. Then pieces of it would be chopped off and eaten raw by everyone present. You just heard all that correctly. Even hardened veteran investigators and forensic specialists were shocked by how over the top the debauchery of these crimes was. It boggles the minds. You know, the three, these four men could come together to do what they did. So settle in, embrace yourself. Today we dive into another. How the hell is this slice of true crime pie not more well-known? It really doesn't get much worse than this true crime edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sack. Step inside the cult of the curious. Hopefully, uh, once again. I'm feeling 100% again. Uh, Fuck COVID. Glad it's gone uh, out of my system once more. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, glory be to Triple M. Uh, Very quickly, my heart goes out to the victims of both the uh, Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York mass shootings, the recent mass shootings, both places, both shootings, obviously uh, beyond tragic. I I wish I knew how to prevent further tragedies. I could toss out some knee-jerk solution possibility, but it wouldn't be educated because I frankly just have not had enough time to research either horrible tragedy adequately. And I don't want to just throw out some emotional reaction that's not going to help anybody or anything. It's just fucking sad. I just feel terrible for everyone hurt, killed. Just I'm so disgusted by the perpetrators, uh, people who feel like committing acts that sick uh, is the answer to anything, which it it never is. Uh, that being said, uh, charity-wise, we're, we're not donating, donating to either tragedy, not because we don't care, but because we had already committed to another wonderful charity for this month, the rainbowrailroad.org. Bad magic donating a yet to be calculated amount from our patrons. It'll be around $14,000. The Rainbow Railroad, founded in 2006, uh, assists LGBTQI plus people who face persecution because of their sexual orientation and or gender identity. Rainbow Railroad's main goal is to help those whom are in danger by relocating them to a safer country or to a safe house. Their work is complex and important to get involved, to learn more, to request help for yourself, please go to rainbowrailroad.org. Uh, two more quick announcements. Thanks to all those who came out to the shows at the Blue Room Comedy Club in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, a few weekends ago, by the time this episode drops, downtown Springfield, uh, super cool. Lindsay and I love it. I appreciate the letters and gifts you had sent back to the green room very much. Uh, yeah, the gifts are just uh, amazing. It's just crazy you guys even do that. Send them into the studio. Uh, it's Yeah, blows my mind just consistently. Uh, it was great meeting a bunch of you outside the club after some of the late shows. Uh, as I record, there's only two cities left before I take a three-month summer break from touring, focus on family, friends, and of course, Bad Magic Productions. Uh, June 10th, I'll be at the Rhythm City Casino in Davenport, Iowa. June 11th, in Chicago for two shows at Talia Hall. And uh, did I say Milwaukee? No, I didn't. I'm going to be in Milwaukee. Well, I was already in Milwaukee by the time this episode comes out. So that's why I didn't say anything. So hopefully I had fun in Milwaukee. Uh, thanks for making the effort to show up and pack out a lot of these venues. The show's been a blast. And thanks to a lot of you for finding me recently on TikTok. Been posting clips of uh, both brand new and old stand-up on there, at Dan Cummins Comedy. 
Also, at Dan Gilman's Comedy, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Finally, a uh, fun, weird new piece of merch in the store this week at badmagicmerch.com. Russia's strongest pony boy t-shirt. Uh, Putin's such strong pony boy for daddy. Now have strong hands and pony boy uh, chest uh, pony shirt. Uh, Putin uh, may also have a new sweet song for you. If you're willing to listen all the way to the end of this episode. Real, real banger. I think it's his hottest track yet. Uh, now back to the world of true crime. For this episode, sucking on the Ripper crew. Before I even say anything else, um, I, I want to say in the cold open, I said apartment of Robin Gecht and he actually rented a house. They referenced apartment in most, not most, a lot of sources. That was wrong. And I didn't clean up that one thing. And it was going to annoy me for the rest of the episode if I didn't say something now. Not that anyone, uh, not that it affects the story at all, which it doesn't. But for accuracy, he rented a house, not an apartment. Um, yeah, sucking on the Ripper crew. Uh, this is the first time we've covered not just one murderer, not just a pair of murderers, but four dirtbags who all came together to commit some seriously fucked up deplorable acts. Uh, a serial killing quartet. Very similar to a barbershop quartet, quartet, uh, except um, completely different in every single way outside of four people working together towards a common goal. To cover the Ripper crew, we'll first talk a little bit about what Chicago was like when they were active. Then we'll touch on America's satanic panic in the 80s, how they would feed that. Then we'll dive into how this crew worked together for their crimes, which is exceedingly rare, and how some true crime writers have interpreted the Ripper crew's crimes, including blaming Robert Geck for being the group's ringleader, which gets us into some ethically murky territory. If Geck was the ringleader, does that mean that the other men who participated were less responsible? Because as you'll learn, their IQs were lower. lower. And defense attorneys would try and make that argument. Uh, finally, we'll zoom out and meet each member of the Ripper crew as much as we can with uh, what info is out there before moving into a time-suck timeline of the group's horrific crimes and their investigation, or and the investigation, that brought those crimes to light. So let us begin. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, the Ripper crew, sometimes called the Chicago Rippers, were a satanic cult slash murder, murder squad uh, composed of four men who really ran up quite the laundry list of all the fucked up things us meat sacks can do. Robin Gecht, Edward Spreister, uh, Andrew or Andy Cocorales, Thomas Cocorales were not only murderers and rapists, they were cannibals and necrophiliacs who enjoyed playing with and masturbating onto and sometimes even into the severed breasts of their victims' bodies. The gang's first victim that we know of was 26-year-old Linda Sutton, who was abducted May 23rd, 1981, and then they would keep torturing, raping, mutilating, killing, wouldn't be caught until October of 1982. Over those 17 months, it's believed they were responsible for at least 18 murders and at least a couple additional rapes and mutilations. It was an especially bloody time for the historically bloody city of Chicago when these dirtbags were active. It was also, on many levels, a time of uh, progress. Less than a decade earlier, in 1973, Chicago's Sears Tower was completed. Over 100 stories, almost 1,500 feet high, it became the world's tallest building. Almost uh, half a century later, still the second tallest building in North America, though it is now called the Willis Tower. 1979, just a few years before the Ripper Crew's murders, Jane Byrne became the first woman elected as mayor of Chicago. She won with the highest margin in any Chicago mayoral election, mayoral election before or since. And many thought she did a great job. Her progressive ideas, decisive actions led to some lasting positive changes for the city. However, a couple of missteps combined with an atmosphere of sexism and misogyny uh, from her, her most strident critics led her to lose the 1983 election to Harold Washington, who became the first African-American mayor of Chicago. It was a time of progress, but also a time of widespread corruption. 
Uh, also in the 80s, the FBI's Operation Greylord uncovered massive and systemic corruption throughout Chicago's judicial system. Greylord was the longest and most successful undercover operation in the history of the FBI at that time, resulted in 92 federal indictments, including 17 judges, 48 lawyers, eight police officers, 10 deputy sheriffs, eight court officials, and one state legislator. Almost all those indictments led to corruption convictions. Additionally, for the average person living in Chicago, the 1980s uh, were an especially gritty time, a time when the infrastructure of the city was poor and people they could afford to were fleeing to the suburbs. Between 1950 and 1960, Chicago's population shrank for the first time in its history uh, when factory jobs leveled off and those people started moving out to the suburbs. Poor neighborhoods were raised, replaced with massive public housing, and saw, that solved a few of the problems of poverty and violence. Riots in 1968 following the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, violent police response, marring protests at the Democratic National Convention that year. There was a lot of, a lot of shit going on that wasn't good. Over the following decade plus, Chicago's downtown deteriorated into urban decay. By the early 1980s, there was little to no development occurring in the city and everything had been uh, moving on to the suburbs. The South Loop became a very dangerous area. Wicker, Wicker Park, Bucktown, also places you didn't want to be caught alone walking around at night or even during the day in some cases. Many other areas of the city, some of its suburbs had grown desolate, gang-ridden, massive uh, decrepit public housing projects such as the Cabrini Green and Robert Taylor Homes loomed in the skyline, a, a testament to modernism's failure to cure poverty. Many of these old buildings have been you know, raised in recent years. The L, Chicago's rapid transit system, serving over 140 stations located throughout the city and nearby suburbs on elevated railways and subways or on the ground, were full of slow zones where trains could only go 50 miles per hour due to years of deferred maintenance. Shit was getting rickety. Soldier Field, Chicago Stadium were crumbling. Lincoln Park had mostly become the domain of uh, broke college kids and uh, local hoodlums. And crime was, if not on the rise in the 80s, certainly still far too present. Chicago saw a major, major rise in violent crime starting in the late 1960s. Uh, murders in the city peaked in 1974 with 970 murders when the city's population was over 3 million, resulting in a murder rate of around 29 per 100,000, leading up to the Ripper Crew killings of 1982, between 1973 and 1982, between 1,000 and 1,300 people were killed in Illinois every year. The overwhelming majority of them died in Chicago and its nearby suburbs. Many of these deaths were gang-related or random isolated crimes. Some were domestic violence. Others were committed by, you know, one of the biggest names in serial killing history. John Wayne Gacy would be arrested on December 21st, 1978, after killing over 30 in the Chicago area since 1972. Fueled by true crime accounts, panic and a sense held by many of overall cultural moral decay. Isn't there always a big group of people who feel that our culture is, a, is the most immoral it's ever been? Uh, many people were looking for something to blame for all this overall murder and decay and so much other crime as well. Theft, rape, etc. And many by the time the Ripper crew were caught were blaming Satanism. And because these dirtbags actually did consider themselves to be Satanists, uh, I'm surprised their crimes didn't get a lot more press than they did. I'm surprised a major horror movie or thriller hasn't been made about these monsters. Maybe their crimes are actually just too fucked up for that to happen. Uh, the Ripper crew would really throw a lot of gas on America's already brightly burning satanic panic fire. We first covered a bit of what I'm going to uh, go over right now. A long time ago on Time Suck, uh, way back in the Mandela Effect episode, Suck 31. And I have mentioned several times since. Uh, covering again today because it is so relevant to this story. Thanks to a lot of not actually real memories recovered primarily during uh, bullshit hypnosis sessions or created through leading questions and social pressure, creating many genuine cases, a good old false memory syndrome. 
There was a lot of people already fearing the evil and torturous ways of the Dark Lord by the time the Ripper Crew's exploits became public knowledge. The Satanic Panic had been kicked off with a book in 1980 that became very popular, especially in certain circles. Michelle Remembers, written by Canadians Michelle Smith, the titular, titular figure. That's a word I had to practice a little bit. Titular. Okay. And her husband, psychiatrist Lawrence Padzer, first, was first published in 1980. Uh, now thoroughly discredited, this book of lies was written in the form of a 100% true, be so scared, everyone, so scared, uh, autobiography, presenting the first modern claim that someone's child abuse uh, was linked to satanic rituals. Michelle, remember, uh, Mich- Michelle remembers chronicles Padzer's therapy sessions during the late 70s with Michelle, who would later become his wife. As the book tells it, in 1976, when Pazder was treating Michelle for depression, Michelle confided in him that she felt that she had something important to tell him. But, you know, gosh dang, just couldn't remember what it was. Probably because it never happened. Soon after this confession, Pazder and Michelle had a session where Michelle purportedly screamed for 25 minutes nonstop, then eventually started speaking in the voice of a five-year-old. I wonder if I should try that with my uh, BetterHelp therapist. I wonder how she'd handle it if I spent the first 25 minutes of a 45-minute session literally screaming into my laptop, remember laptop, uh, nonstop, and then just spent the rest of the session talking like a five-year-old. If nothing else, it would make for a uh, an interesting and probably pretty tense follow-up session. Uh, guessing once I told her I was just joking around, uh, she wouldn't be super pumped for more sessions. Uh, according to this book, during the next 14 months, Padger spent more than 600 hours using hypnosis to help Smith recover memories of satanic ritual abuse that occurred when she was just five years old in 1954 and 1955 at the hands of many, including her mother, Virginia Proby, so many others, some important town officials, all of whom Michelle said were members of a satanic cult in beautiful Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Padger would end up alleging that Smith was abused by some purported underground Church of Satan members, which he said, uh, this, uh, this organization was a worldwide and powerful organization that ex- had existed for thousands of years, predated the Christian church. He said the first alleged ritual attended by Smith took place in 1954 when she was five years old, fucking hoods and chanting and all that shit. The final one documented in the book was an 81 day long ritual. That's a long ass ritual, uh, conducted in 1955 that summoned the devil himself. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> Uh, and also, for some reason, this 81-day-long ritual uh, involved uh, the intervention of Jesus, Virgin Mary, and Michael, the archangel. This doesn't reek of mental illness at all. Uh, who removed the scars received by Smith throughout the year-plus of satanic abuse and removed memories of the events, quote, until the time was right, or the fuck that means. Uh, during this ritual abuse that for sure never happened, Smith was supposedly brutally tortured, locked in cages, sexually assaulted, given weird enemas, Forced to take part in various rituals full of people, again, in dark hoods, you know, fucking chanting, uh, had goats around, black cats, all the cliche scary shit. And she even witnessed uh, several murders and had her body rubbed down with the blood of sacrificed babies and the body parts of murdered virgins, etc., etc. And all of this was utter nonsense. Uh, I have skimmed it. You can find full PDFs of this uh, book online. And, oh, heavens to Betsy, it is not well written. Dr. Patzer was clearly a fucking quack uh, to believe any of this shit and not a good writer. Uh, Her memories, fever dream gibberish. The recovered memory sessions recorded that highlighted in the book were basically just Michelle and Lawrence Padzer. uh, He doesn't deserve his doctor title. Playing an improv game of yes and 
with the theme being, what's the most evil, horrible thing that a Satanist could have ever done to you as a kid? And this improv was then treated as actual memories instead of imagination land bullshit. Even though the book was later, again, completely discredited by numerous members of Michelle's own family and the police uh, back in the 80s, it fucking took off. You know, the whole thing we've talked about so many times, people love the headline, they get sucked in the original story, no one reads the retraction. Millions of people ate up every word as gospel truth, which doesn't speak a lot uh, highly, uh, very highly to their intelligence. And they were scared. So scared of the devil. To You get it. Uh, prosecutors, actual fucking lawyers with actual law degrees would even use Michelle Remembers as a guide, which is disturbing, uh, when preparing cases against other alleged Satanists. There were, there were numerous Satanic panic trials in the U.S., such as the infamous McMartin Preschool trial in Manhattan Beach, California in the early 80s. Oh, these poor bastards in the McMartin trial, someone later proven to be a paranoid schizophrenic, unmedicated, made wild allegations, as someone with that illness would do, uh, of people being flushed down the toilet, uh, of actual witches showing up, flying around on fucking brooms and shit, uh, allegations of daycare providers, uh, fucking animals, goats and stuff, and satanic orgies. Uh, Chuck Norris even made a satanic cameo. For some reason, it's bonkers. Uh, kids were interviewed from the daycare. Their claims were absolutely nonsensical because they were fed leading questions by uh, you know law enforcement and investigators. And then it was taken seriously by people who should have lost the ability to ever participate in the legal system or law enforcement ever again for being a part of this on any level. Innocent people went to prison, had their businesses shut down, lives and reputations ruined in a literal witch hunt that took place not in the 17th century, but in the 1980s. The satanic panic got way, fucking way out of hand. Uh, Many across America were real worried about satanic cults in the early 80s, including a lot of people in Chicago. They had better reasons than most. Uh, 1980 Chicago Police Department document would even outline how to identify teens involved in satanic ritualistic crime. The 25-page pamphlet was called Identification, Investigation, and Understanding of Ritualistic Criminal Activity. And the author, Robert uh, Samandel, was a gang crimes and ritual abuse specialist for the Chicago Police Department. This dude traveled around the country, held seminars, spoke at conferences, trained police, other child protection affiliated professionals in the 80s about uh, the dangers of the occult. Uh, today's episode does involve monsters who did think they gained power from doing shit for the devil. And they did carry out extremely dark rituals, but they were not part of some larger organization. This stuff, I cannot stress this enough, is so extremely rare and isolated. If it wasn't, we would have so many more episodes about satanic killers. Uh, anyway, Bob's pamphlet described the four stages of satanic activity, warned that teens were being seduced by offers of free sex and drug parties from devil lovers. Uh, even described 16 signs of satanic involvement, uh, one of which is uh, using tarot cards. <laughs> oh, boy, we're having those made for scared to death. Yeah, run, get out of here before you lose your soul. Uh, altars, ceremonial knives, etc. Uh, I love this. It said, a, it said a letter opener will suffice for knives, though. <laughs> love that detail about the Satanists. Like they're just out there. Do you have a ceremonial knife to prepare our sacrifice to please the Dark Lord? No, I don't. But I do have a letter opener. I think that should still do the trick. If there's one thing I know about Beelzebub, is that he's a very laid back, easygoing, understanding fella. Uh, the Ripper crew, unfortunately, added greatly to America's satanic panic by actually doing the exact kind of crazy shit that so many people were already afraid of. They were already thinking they say Satanists were doing, and then these fuckers actually do it. And everyone's like, I told you it was real. They gave a lot of other people's nonsensical claims a air of credibility, unfortunately. 
They legitimized it all. Uh, gave the fearful something truly terrifying to point to. A, a truth is stranger than fiction scenario. Now, before we examine some of the crimes and misdeeds of the Ripper crew, let's take a step back, look at the question, how does a four-person murder squad get away with 18 murders in the span of less than a year and a half, right? More than a murder a month, at least. These are the ones that they uh, strongly assume they did. Common logic, and we've covered this territory before with Fred and Rosemary West and with the freeway killer, William Bonin, old Billy Gutterballs, and other episodes would dictate that the more people you have involved in your serial killing activities, the greater the chance you have of getting caught. In the case of the Ripper crew, now you don't have to just worry about one alibi. Now you have to worry about four. You don't have to worry about two stories not matching up, like with Fred and Rose West. Four stories now have to be airtight if you want to evade the cops if you get questioned. And this would concern me the most uh, if I was part of a serial killing crew, which I am not for the record. But I can't say the same thing for my dad with 100% certainty. You need to make sure that all four people aren't going to just suddenly have a come to Jesus moment, rat you out to the cops. Or, or simply that someone else in their life, you know, just uh, is going to get clued into what's going on and then report you all. Everyone has to hide savage, bloody, messy crimes, many of them, from all the people in their lives. Or at least scare all the people in their lives into keeping their fucking mouth shut. And they have to do this over and over again for a year and a half. From a, what are my best odds of getting away with evil shit perspective, having four people in your murder squad doesn't make a lot of sense. But the Ripper crew got away with it for quite some time. So how did they do that? Well, they'll make a wild claim after their arrest in this regard. Three of them will. Uh, Edward Spreister and the Cocorales brothers will claim that they were simply far too scared to rat on Robin Gecht, who they claimed was their ringleader. Uh, they claimed that they were basically held under his dark spell. Right? Cue the, the Halloween music. They believed he had some kind of satanic occult powers. Satan's son. They believed he was almost superhuman. And if they crossed him, there would be literal hell to pay. And that is why they feared the Dark Lord. So how did this group operate? How are they structured? These Dark Lord fears. Uh, in looking over the major sources for this week's episode, it seems like true crime authors usually viewed uh, and, and continue to view the Ripper crew in one of two ways. Option one, all the members of the Ripper crew were bad, disgusting people who equally brutalized their victims of their own free will. They all did it simply because they could, and it felt good to do it. They were all in it together, four fucking psychopaths who happened to find each other, uh, you know, to the extreme detriment of every victim they crossed paths with. For evidence that all four did enjoy what they were doing to at least some degree, we need look no further than the Ripper, Cree, uh, Ripper crew's massively brutal crime details. All would admit at one point or another to taking an active part in at least some of the crimes. Also, none of these dudes ever went to the police to try and stop any further crimes from being committed when they had the chance. Uh, if one of them truly wanted nothing to do with all this, why not go to the cops, try and make a plea deal? I mean, of course they can say we were, we were scared of the, the devil guy. Uh, also, I uh, thought that some combination of these men, at least two of them at a time, actively participated in crimes as opposed to one guy doing most of the crime solo and then just occasionally pressuring someone else to join him like old freeway killer uh, Billy Gutterballs. Also, the group murders were full of so much group violence, multiple men raping, mutilating the same victims. These attacks would sometimes last for hours. The women uh, alive for most of the pain inflicted upon them, according to forensic experts. If doing something like that was truly horrific to you, like it would be to a normal fucking not deranged person, how could you keep doing it? How could you get sexually excited enough, i.e. erect, in order to actively participate in some uh, incredibly dark sexual aspects of these crimes. Their final act before the victim died was typically to remove her fucking breasts, at least one of them, 
using some piano wire. Multiple men admitting, admitted to doing this. It's not like one dude was always a dude who did it. That is not a passive act. And that is so fucking savage. More brutal than removing it with a saw, I think. And while the men would dispose of their victims' bodies, they saved the breasts for the last part of the ritual, a cannibalistic communion that had a sexual element to it, right? All four of them would participate in this dark communion. No one passed on that fucking semen-sauced breast meat. The Ripper crew uh, concluded most of their attacks with a satanic cannibalistic ceremony that ended in that communion. Some combination of the four men returning to an altar in Robert Geck's home where they would read from the satanic Bible or other occult literature, fucking jerk off onto a severed breast, bloody breast, cut it up, eat some of it. And then, you know, Geck uh, kept what was left as some seriously fucked up trophy stashed in some little fucking box of tits. At no point during any of this debauchery did any member of the Ripper crew tap out. Like, I fuck, I can't. Enough's enough. None of them came forward to the police. None of them alerted anyone. None of them did anything that might have stopped the next brutal attack from taking place. Looking at it this way, uh, hard to see the Ripper crew as anything but just a, a group of four equally violent individuals. Evil monsters, really, who were as scary as any slasher flick bad guy, right? Men who worked together to bring pain and chaos to too many Chicago area women. I, I would rather have fucking Michael Myers... Right, Jason Voorhees after me than any of these terrifying, sadistic motherfuckers. Especially if I was a woman. Especially if I was a woman with large breasts. Okay, now let's look at option number two. The other primary way most true crime authors uh, view the Ripper crew. This is the viewpoint held by Jennifer Furio, who would collect letters written by Robin Geck, written by Robin Gecht and Edward Spreister from prison. Jennifer and many others uh, think that Robin was the ringleader or puppet master someone who could and did manipulate those around him, especially the three younger, less intelligent members into doing whatever evil shit he wanted them to do. What gets problematic with that view is that Robin Gecht would be the only member of the crew not charged with murder. Was that because he was less guilty? No one, literally no one familiar with this case that I have come across seems to think so at all. Was he smarter, sneakier, more manipulative? Yes, seems so. I have a hard time understanding why Robin was never charged with any of the murders. I mean, it was his van the men used to hunt victims with. It was his house where they had a satanic altar, you know, where they'd bring severed breasts back to. He was also the guy who, following his arrest, would be ratted out to the police for having a violent breast fetish by numerous women he knew. One girl Robin was dating, not his wife, told police he was always demanding that she cut off her fucking nipples. And that if she didn't, somebody else would. Robin, also the only man... Uh, that, you know, one of the Ripper Cruise victims who got away after being sexually tortured and raped would be able to positively identify. How the fuck was he the only one not charged with murder? Did Satan help him out a bit? Not enough to set him free, but enough to keep him off death row? Keep him from getting murder charges? I don't know. Weird detail of the story. All the sources just say there just wasn't enough evidence with him. Uh, but also, you know, DNA evidence wasn't a thing yet. Uh, 1983, Robert Geck would only be convicted of attempted murder, aggravated kidnapping, deviant sexual assaults, and rape for the non-fatal rape and assault of Beverly Washington. It is preposterous and amazing, miraculous that she survived. Uh, fortunately, because it seems as if law enforcement, the judge, prosecutors, etc., knew this guy was a fucking serial killer and extreme sexual sadist, Geck would still be sentenced to 120 years in prison for the crimes that they could convict him of. They threw the book at this guy. Uh, this sentence ensured that he will very likely die before getting a whiff of ever seeing a parole board. So that's good. Uh, Gecht maintains his innocence in prison to this day. If he does get paroled when he's first eligible for release, he'll be 88. It'll be in 2040 or 2042. 
Only thing he might be ripping by then are the tops off some pudding cups. So I guess that's nice. Uh, hopefully if he does make it that long, his pro will be denied. Let's just, let's just hold on to hope that he might, you know, let him hold on to hope that he might walk free again. Even if he needs a walker to do so only to, in the end, uh, be turned down and die disappointed. He certainly deserves that. So was Geck the Ripper's uh, pep- puppet master? According to forensic analysis, combined with confessions of Edward Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers, yeah, he probably was. If he would have just been arrested five, ten years later, seems that uh, everyone strongly believes DNA evidence would have definitely put him on death row. In the confessions of the other three men, they all presented police with the same picture of Gecht as a Charles Manson-esque figure able to persuade others to kill and harm for him. Edward, Andy, Thomas claimed to believe that Gecht had the power to draw people to him, make them feel as if they were in a trance that they just couldn't get out of. Like I mentioned, they actually seemed to believe that this dude had genuine satanic dark wizard type of powers. Once under the uh, spell of Gek's powers, the men claimed that uh, he could get them to do whatever he desired, be that murder or cannibalism. They claimed they had no choice but to follow Gek's lead, believing if they didn't, uh, they would fall victim to his sadistic ways. How terrible of actually true that someone could actually put some kind of fucking spell over you, make you do some of the worst things imaginable to someone else. Uh, is this story nothing more than an attempt by the other three rippers to absolve themselves of any moral responsibility in what they did? It wasn't my fault. I'm a good person who just got overpowered by the evil of Robin Gecht. I'm another one of his victims, right? It's a nice blame game to play, to not have to uh, not take any responsibility, you know, for doing shit like use piano wire to sever some poor woman's breasts off. Some woman you've also beaten and raped, woman you've, uh, you know, helped kill. Or several true crime and legal experts have floated the possibility out there. Did the uh, this uh, possibility out there? Did the other three rippers truly believe that Gecht did have supernatural powers? Not because he did have those powers, uh, not because they even wanted to be painted as victims, but because they were very gullible, much more so than the average person, uh, much more susceptible to following someone else's lead and believe their crazy stories because they genuinely had very low IQs. In 1986, for example, Edward Spicer's attorney uh, Carol Affinson argued that he was immature, impulsive, and simplistic merely following Gek's orders. She described him as an especially lonely person as well who would do almost anything to please a friend. I mean, if true, that is a seriously fucked up case of being a people pleaser. Oh, gosh, no. I, I did not want to help uh, pinch off her, her titty or murder her or, or, or pleasure myself uh, onto the said titty and eat it along with the ejaculate of the other three gentlemen I, I was with. Oh, man, I was horrified. It, it is horrific. It's, it's deplorable. <laughs> Gross. I would have much rather have taken her out to a wonderful dinner, uh, opened some doors for her, picked up the check, also walked her to the door at the end of the evening, made sure she felt safe before kissing her on the cheek and, and heading home. But, you know, <laughs> Robin being Robin, uh, he wanted to take things in a different direction. And what Robin wants, he gets. Uh, the Dark Lord wills it. You have to do what he wants. And he, and he usually wants to eat some uh, severed uh, tough titties covered in cum. <laughs> Excuse my language. But that's the deal. That, that's Robin. I don't fucking know. Uh, Thomas Cocorales, at the time of his arrest, was a painter with no criminal record. Described as having a borderline range of intellect with an IQ of 75. Was he just not smart enough to stand up to Robin? Is that even possible? Or is that uh, extremely insulting to people with lower than average IQs? To suppose that their moral resolve must also be weaker. I asked my wife, Lindsay, about all this. Uh, You know, I, I was like, if I wanted, you know, you to do something terrible, would you do it just because you're a terrible person? Or would you do it because you're Polish and you're not smart enough to understand, you know, how life's supposed to work? And she didn't, she just uh, kind of stared off in the distance. Didn't seem to understand what I was saying to her. Uh, Jack, hey, come on. Uh, no, but seriously, to try and find uh, the answer to this question, we need to look into re- the relationship 
the studied relationship between lower intelligence and crime. This has been something that researchers have puzzled over for decades. In really uh, for a century. In the first quarter of the 1900s, hundreds of studies categorized criminal offenders in general as feeble-minded and mentally deficient. Sounds a little weird, right? That basically, if you were out there uh, robbing and stealing and hurting, it was probably because you just weren't bright enough to effectively use your words. Put the severed titty down, Tommy. Stop jerking onto it. Use your word. Use your words. 50 studies conducted from 1910 to 1914 identified an average of 51% of institutionalized delinquents as feeble-minded. But these studies were not examining exactly what it now appears they were, right? The designation of feeble-minded in the early 1900s, different than ours today. Feeble-mindedness was a term that first emerged in the mid-19th century in the U.S. to describe individuals exhibiting a lack of productivity or any other behavior viewed as backward, anything outside the uh, social norms. It didn't originally necessarily mean a less than average intelligence at all. You could just be uh, seen as lazy or, or more akin to ignorant. Uh, then in the early 20th century, field minders began to fall under the general designation of mental deficiency, denoting the highest level of functioning under the label with imbecility and idiocy, denoting the median and most severe deficiencies respectively. This hypothesis that uh, portrayed criminals as so feeble-minded or mentally deficient that they can neither distinguish right from wrong uh, nor resist criminal impulses, yeah, it started to lose traction as a, uh, you know, as denoting actual like IQ. Uh, the feeble-mindedness hypothesis lost favor long ago because it became, became clear that uh, very few criminals are mentally deficient. Most recognized behavioral norms are plenty smart enough to do so. They just choose not to follow them. In 1931, noted American sociologist E.H. Sutherland challenged the view that feeble-mindedness was responsible for crime. He compared the IQ scores of adult offenders to those of army draftees, thought to be representative of the general population, and the two groups had nearly identical IQ levels. He concluded that intelligence was not a generally important cause of delinquency, which is how they would generally refer to criminality at that time. Uh, This rejection of an association between IQ and criminality was widely accepted in criminological literature throughout the mid-19 or through uh, until the mid-1970s. Then in 1977, just a few years before the crimes and capture of the Ripper crew members, Travis Hershey and Michael Hindelang, two State University of New York Albany sociology researchers, reviewed a half dozen well-known empirical studies and concluded that IQ predicted delinquency as strong, if not more strongly, than race and social class, two variables prominently featured in criminological theory at that time. The race part, uh, cringy, I know. So now academics began to wonder again if having a lower IQ did in fact make you more likely to be a criminal. This renewed perspective stimulated greater interest in IQ and crime research over the next two decades. The central question of IQ crime studies since the late 70s has been uh, whether individuals with less intelligence on average commit more crime than those with more intelligence do. Are IQ and crime negatively uh, correlated? The best answer drawn from previous research is actually a, a qualified yes. Synthesizing the results of numerous studies, delinquents and criminals average IQ scores 8 to 10 points lower than non-criminals, about one half a standard deviation of the norm. Noted and still active American clinical psychologist Dr. Terry Moffat and some colleagues studied a little over 4,500 Danish men born at the end of World War II. They examined intelligence test scores collected by the Danish Army for screening potential draftees and criminal records drawn from the Danish National Police Register. The men who committed two or more criminal offenses by age 20 had IQ scores on average a full standard deviation below non-offenders, and IQ and criminal offenses were significantly and negatively correlated. Similarly, Dr. Donald Lynham 
a distinguished professor of psychological sciences at Purdue University, and some colleagues studied 437th grade boys in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They measured both IQ and self-reported participation in delinquent acts. Those boys who committed serious delinquent acts, such as stealing cars, breaking and entering, or selling drugs, scored 8 to 10 IQ points lower than boys who had not. There it is again. In another study, Swedish researchers, Hockenstaten and Ingrid Klockenberg Larsen at uh, Uppsala University, located about 20 miles north of Stockholm, followed, followed 122 Swedish males from ages 3 through 30. They measured IQs at ages 3, 5, 8, 11, 14, and 17, then counted the number of registered criminal offenses through age 30. Frequent offenders, those men with four or more criminal offenses, averaged IQ scores of only 91 points. Sporadic offenders averaged 97 IQ points. Non-offenders averaged a full 102 points. 11-point difference there. Overall, in addition to finding a robust IQ crime correlation, additional studies have turned up two other empirical regularities concerning the two worth noting. The first is in regards to two different types of IQ measures, performance IQ, PIQ, and verbal IQ, VIQ. Uh, PIQ is measured with nonverbal tests of attention to detail, manual design construction, and visual puble, uh, puzzle solving. VIQ is measured with tests of general factual knowledge, abstract reasoning, mental arithmetic, and vocabulary. Numerous studies have consistently found that criminals have PIQ scores close to the general population, but that their VIQ scores substantially lower. This finding holds even when controlling for race, class, excuse me, reading ability, uh, according to research done by Dr. Moffat, suggesting that verbal intelligence is a more important correlate of criminal behavior than other types of intelligence. But even this finding is not as simple as the stats make it seem at first. Damn it! While studies have frequently found that IQ and crime correlated around R equals negative 0.20, they disagree about how to interpret the size of that correlation coefficient. At one extreme, some studies have dismissed the IQ crime correlation as being simply too small to matter. American sociologists Scott Menard and Barbara Morse concluded that the association between IQ and delinquent behavior is so weak, it's negligible. And so it contributes nothing to existing delinquency theory. Likewise, numerous researchers with the American Psychological Association figured that since a correlation of R equals negative uh, 0.20 produces an explained variance of only 4%, the IQ crime correlation is very low. However, what a confusing can of academic crime worms we've opened here. Other recent studies have identified IQ as a critical, if not fundamental, correlate of crime. So how do we interpret that? We fucking don't. When you're looking into research for storytelling purposes, it is very important to only include studies that back up whatever is the most interesting and or shocking narrative that you would like to run with. And you should absolutely ignore everything else and just pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, sadly, it feels like many, if not most, uh, maybe maybe uh, damn near all mainstream media outlets, so very good at doing that. Uh, there's actually a wonderful looking book I've been meaning to read for a while now. Been carrying it around in my backpack for about two months uh, called How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Huff. It's about exactly this kind of thing. And of course, I try very hard not to do that here on Time Suck. Uh, let's look at just a few more arguments and counter arguments before trying to make sense of any of this. Uh, some studies have suggested that IQ tests are only measuring middle-class knowledge. And that as a result, many minority groups, lower socioeconomic class people do score lower on IQ tests, even though they are not lower in intelligence. Uh, the same groups also commit proportionally more crime because they suffer from structural disadvantages, you know, poverty, discrimination. A variation of this argument holds that the structural disadvantages that increase crime rates also reduce educational opportunities, thus lessening individuals' ability and motivation to score well on IQ tests. 
even though they may be equally intelligent. Another argument hold, uh, against IQ as a cause of crime holds that school teachers and administrators treat students differently by perceptions of students' intelligence, giving negative labels, fewer educational opportunities to seemingly less intelligent students. These labels, constrained opportunities, then produce feelings of alienation and resentment that lead to delinquent and criminal behavior. It's the treatment that leads to the crime, right? Not the IQ. Yet another argument against IQ holds that even if uh, all people commit crime with equal frequency, less intelligent people would be less able to evade detection and they thus get arrested more often. So there's not necessarily more criminals. There's just more people getting arrested, which, you know, makes sense. Finally, a more recent, more compelling, casual uh, explanation emphasizes the importance of intelligence, especially verbal intelligence during childhood socialization. The socialization of children involves constant verbal communication and comprehension of abstract symbols. Therefore, children with poor verbal you know, skills will have greater difficulty completing the socialization process, which will put them at greater risk of later under-controlled antisocial, i.e. criminal behavior. Zooming back out now. Does this mean that if Robin Gecht was some kind of predatory puppet master or Edward Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers less responsible for the super heinous shit they did right along with that motherfucker? Nope. Uh, do not think it does at all. And here's why. Thomas Cocorales said to have an IQ of 75. An estimated 89% of all people deemed mentally handicapped have IQs in the 50 to 70 range and an IQ in the 60 to 70 range, approximately the scholastic equivalent to the third grade. According to this research, 6.7% of the population has an IQ between uh, 70 and 80. And according to 2020 U.S. Census Bureau information, uh, 77.9% of the U.S. population are of adult age. In 2020, that amounted to 25 or 258.3 million people. Sorry, I forgot to put my stupid phone on. Do not disturb him. You're still good at that. So read that over. 6.7% of uh, 258.3 million people. That's 17.3 million people with IQs between 70 and 80. And as far as we know, how many of these people ever commit crimes as outrageous as the Ripper Crew murders? How many commit crimes, uh, you know, committed that crime that, that savage in the 80s? What, fucking five? 10? Let's say for argument's sake, 200 of them did, which I highly doubt. 200 of 17.3 million. That is just 0.00001% of the population. And that number tells me strongly that you cannot blame a low IQ on doing the shit the Ripper crew did. Because clearly the overwhelming majority of people with the same IQs never do shit like that. Just like the majority of people from everywhere else on the IQ spectrum never do shit like that. That's why I think it was right to hold them just as responsible for their crimes as they would be held if they were smarter. Also why I do not feel sorry for them, intelligence-wise, right? They were smart enough to know that what they were doing was super fucked up. So smart enough to be responsible. Uh, Many criminals with similar IQs have been held responsible for their crimes and uh, also face punishment in the U.S. Louis Mata, executed in 1996, had an IQ between 68 and 70. According to a psychologist who evaluated Mata, His ability to express himself and his ability to recognize the meaning of common words were at the level of a nine to 10 year old child. He lacked basic understanding of familiar processes. He did not know the function of the stomach where the sun sets, nor why stamps are needed on letters. Arithmetic abilities were limited to addition and subtraction with the help of concrete aids such as fingers, right? Very sad, right? You can make a very powerful argument like we can't hurt this person. They're just not smart enough to get it. But... Uh, also super fucking sad that he savagely raped 21-year-old Deborah Lopez, then cut her fucking head almost off, cut her throat so viciously, nearly severed her fucking head. So he wasn't exactly like a nine or 10-year-old in some very important ways. 
He may not have been a fucking math whiz, but guessing, he probably knew it was very wrong to rape this woman and then try to cut her fucking head off. Uh, Even if some of the Ripper crew and other low IQ violent criminals like Louis Mata uh, do or did have trouble with moral reasoning and uh, understanding consequence, isn't it still a real dangerous slippery slope to not consider them fully responsible for their crimes? That's something else to think about. You know, and again, isn't it highly insulting to people with lower IQs to suggest that they're also less moral? And finally, at the end of the day, the death count still the same, regardless of whether or not the perpetrator is intelligent. Uh, victims, family, and friends, I don't think they're going to be less upset because the person that killed their loved one uh, wasn't, you know, uh, a fucking Mensa member, wasn't working for NASA or some shit. Uh, is, is it, you know, tragic if and when low IQ people get manipulated into committing heinous crimes? Yeah, definitely. But at the end of the day, isn't law and order focused not only on punishing perpetrators for crimes already committed, but also on protecting others from being victimized by those same perpetrators in the future? Once the Ripper crew committed those murders, uh, should they have been locked up forever regardless of intelligence simply so they just didn't keep posing a threat to society? I sure think so. No fucking question, no hesitation about it. Protect the greater good, protect society. That in my mind is far and away the most important reason we have law and order. For me, it's actually, as much as I feel the punishment is so deserved in so many cases, it's less about punishment and more about protection from further victimization. The main reason I actually argue to vehemently punish, you know, violent sex offenders to be locked up forever, if not killed. So we don't have to fucking worry about them hurting more people. Speaking of violent sex offenders, let's now meet all the dirtbags at the center of all this, starting with probable ringleader Robin Gecht. At the age of 28, at the time of his arrest, Gecht was quite a bit older than the other three men. Uh, Edward Spreister, just 20. Uh, Tommy Cocorales, just 19. And his little brother, Andy, just 17 when it all began. Uh, According to the National Institute of Mental Health, our brains don't finish developing until our mid to late 20s. Excuse me. Robin was the only one of these devils with a fully formed brain. Front part of the brain called the prefrontal prefrontal cortex, one of the last brain regions to mature. This area is responsible for skills like planning, prioritizing, controlling impulses. Because these skills are still developing, teens are more likely to engage in risky behavior without considering the potential results of their decisions. We can't say that the other members of the Ripper crew were less responsible for their crimes. The fact that Gecht was an adult and his co-dirtbags were younger with less developed brains would stand out to many following the trials of these men. Many would assume that Gecht was the ringleader. Though, unlike his associates, Gecht would always claim his innocence. In an interview, he'd say, First mistake is considering me a serial killer. Am not considered one. I have never killed or took part in any such acts, nor ever charged in any murders of anyone. Ah, man, fuck this guy. Uh, The last part about being charged is true, as we learned. The rest, come on, no. Other three men all claimed that Gecht was in charge. Their stories didn't waver in that regard. Uh, Edward Spreister would describe uh, an alleged instance of Gecht's murderous ways saying a black female was picked up, blindfolded and gagged. Robin shot her point blank in the head, put chains around her neck and legs, attached two bowling balls, threw her in the water. I understand her body was not found. So who was this ringleader? At the time of his arrest, Gecht was a carpenter and electrician. And guess who his boss was? You'll never guess this unless you already know this story. Tony Danza. Yeah, from Who's the Boss? A couple years before he was lighting up the small screen with a young Alyssa Milano, He was running a construction crew with Robin Gecht. Where are the other fucking bodies, Tony Danza? Hey, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, okay, okay. You're sorry. You're sorry. sorry. Hey, look, I didn't see anything. You saw everything. You did see everything, Tony Danza. You know where the fucking bodies are. JK, of course. Actually, the truth might be even crazier than Tony Danza. Uh... (laughs) 
his, his fucking boss was serial killer John Wayne Gacy. Pogo, Chicago's killer clown. The old Kentucky Fried Chicken University graduate. Mr. How about you teens hang out in my basement and have some beers with your KFC boss and birthday clown buddy? Holy shit, that guy was one creepy fuck. Uh, Gecht was employed at PDM Contractors, owned by John Wayne Gacy, right? They were very familiar with one another. Uh, you know, and this happened, you know, a couple years before the murders. Gecht's neighbors after his arrest would report that his house became quite the neighborhood hangout spot for area teens, listen to loud music, party. I wonder if he was inspired by his boss, right? Gacy did that same shit just a couple years earlier. Gacy loved using handcuffs on his victims. The Ripper crew, allegedly led by Robin, based on the testimony again of the other, other members, loved handcuffs. Robin was the one who supposedly always put them on the victims. No criminal connection has ever been established between Gacy and Gecht, but a lot of people have wondered. Basically, was uh, Gacy his murderous, um, you know, mentor? Was he was he Gacy's protege? Uh, some observers have long wondered if Gacy uh, had help in committing some of his crimes, or if, as Gacy himself claimed, you know, at least 28 of the 33 bodies found at his house were victims of his employees. If even one of the bodies buried in Gacy's basement was one of Geck's victim, man, what a super fucking dark and odd connection. Can't think of coming across that before. One serial killer, I mean, never charged with murder with Robin Robin's case, but come on, for sure a serial killer, uh, who worked for another serial killer with totally separate victim lists. Uh, now let's back up to what we know about Geck's childhood. Uh, Robin was born on November 30th, 1953 in Menard, Illinois, small unincorporated community, about 60 miles south of St. Louis, uh, across the Mississippi River from Missouri, mostly known for a prison there, the Menard Correctional uh, Center. So how fitting. As a teenager, he'd be accused of molesting his sister, also reportedly had a strong interest in Satanism beginning at an early age. Uh, yeah, that tracks. After the alleged molestation, based on who he'll become, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it for sure happened, his parents sent him to live with his grandparents. Uh, then of his adult life, we don't know much. Edward would allege that Robin had been locked up 17 times for raping high school girls, had over 400 speeding and parking tickets, owned 400 guns, <laughs> and 350 knives. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that is a wee bit of an exaggeration. That would paint quite the ridiculous picture. I just, uh, I imagine heading over to Robin's house before he's arrested and there's uh, there's no place to sit down. Yeah, not even a place, you know, for you to sit down a fucking cup of coffee because every inch of surface space is completely buried in parking tickets, guns, arrest reports, uh, knives, or some combination, right? Uh, sorry about the mess there. Uh, ha- haven't had a minute to tidy up the place. Ha- have a sit on that chair there. Go ahead and toss those uh, tickets on the floor and just set that Rambo knife in the old timer pocket knife and that uh, switchblade, those uh, steak knives, that butcher knife, uh, that paring knife on the floor there. Uh, just hey, just lean that Mossberg twelve gauge up against the wall over there, and uh, just set that Smith and Wesson three fifty seven Magnum, that Remington twenty two rifle with the scope uh, below it there. Just make yourself at home. Hey, hey careful of that thirty out six Springfield. It's loaded. Safety's probably not on. Just just push it over next to that arrest report. Some other high school girl <laughs> saying I raped her and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, kids. Uh, we do know that Robin was married. He had a wife and three children at the time of his arrest. He married his wife Rosemary, aka Rose. In Bellwood, Illinois, 1975, Bellwood being a western suburb of Chicago, the couple had three kids, boy and two girls, boy about two, girls five and seven and a half when Robin gets arrested. Two daughters attended John or St. John Bosco Parochial School, family was Catholic, Rose and the, and the kids went to church regularly. Uh, not so sure about Robin, I'm going to say no. Guy with the satanic altar in the attic, probably not. I uh, wonder if he was molested by any clergy members growing up left him with a special hatred of the Christian God, right? Fueled his rage, made him do some of this shit. I don't know. No sources hint at that. Who knows? 
And at the time of his arrest, he was living with his family at 2163 McBicker Avenue. They were a normal family, as far as we knew. One neighbor would say after Geck's arrest, only incident that came to mind with this neighbor to suggest anything else uh, you know, was going on at, uh, with Geck was one time he came out of his house with a shotgun to break up a fight. But at that time, he was regarded as a hero for doing so. In reality, of course, he was anything but. Uh, to close friends at the diner where uh, Rose occasionally waited tables, she confessed that she loved her husband too much to leave him after he was caught, even though he frequently stayed out all night, also brought some random teenagers home to party with, including uh, girls he would have sex with. Uh, one was his girlfriend. <laughs> My God, what, what fucking weird, sad lives some people choose to live. I, I love him. Robin is such a lovable husband. I mean, yeah, you know, he stays out all night and he won't tell me where he's been or, or what he's been doing. And sometimes, he, you know, it seems like he has blood on his clothes when he comes home. And, and sometimes he brings home uh, Lucy or maybe it's Laura. I don't know, some high schooler that he's been having sex with. But never in our bed. Never that. He wouldn't dream of disrespecting me like that. Uh, maybe Rose stayed with Robin because he just, uh, he loved her he loved her titties so so much. Maybe he was actually sweet to them. Uh, no. No, you're, uh, you're about to find out. He was pretty fucking rough. Not only with the breasts of women he murdered, but uh, basically every breast he came into contact with. Definitely also his wife's breasts. This fucking maniac probably bit off his mother's nipples when she breastfed him. Uh, Robin, arguably the worst boob man of all time. I cannot recall ever coming across a story of anyone, A, so ridiculously obsessed with breasts, and I'm a guy who loves boobs, and B, so consistently violent with them. The boob shit. We're going to go over the oddest part of this whole sad story to me. Gecht uh, definitely thought to be the person who pushed uh, for the gang's most distinctive MO, their mutilation of victims' breasts. Geck once said to a reporter, we're going to answer your question on obsession with breasts. It is a thing with my entire family, going back, as, uh, as I'm told, to uh, my great-grandfather. Fucking, excuse me? Uh, Geck further explained, each of us men have married large-breasted women. My wife is a 39D, and yeah, she was very satisfying to me. Sound like this guy came from a real stable, upstanding family. As uh, far as I'm told, us geck men have always loved to uh, to suck on, you know, grab, slap, spit on, uh, rub, grope, manhandle, uh, motorboat, punch, stab, twist, uh, fuck big titties and such, you know. Nickname for every woman in my family, uh, my mom, my grandma, great-grandmom, aunt, sister, etc. All of them, all of them is Pearl. Every lady's called Pearl, as in Pearl Necklace. They, they have a saying in the family, if you marry a geck, you can come on your neck. <laughs> you get it? Because you're getting those titties fucked. And that's all I have to say about that. Uh, fucking lunatic. After his arrest, many poor women Robin sexually assaulted but didn't kill would come forward with their stories of how Geck had, uh, you know, uh, men handled their breasts. Women involved with Robin, some of them women consensually involved with him, described him as a man obsessed in the most horrible of ways with nipples and breasts. He was just never sweet to those teats. Robin would reportedly do shit like stick uh, fucking sewing pins in women's areolas, uh, make little cuts with various uh, knives, uh, you know, like um, sometimes not so little, especially around the nipples. He would slice around the nipples, transfix by the lacerations. After the blood would clot, he would sometimes explore the wound. Uh, Robin explained that he just wanted to see how the nipple worked, as if that is a fucking normal thing to do. Uh, this obviously led to the end of a couple relationships. Should have led to the end of uh, led to the end of all of them. Again, what the fuck are some people doing with their lives? It's so sad to me that women would allow this deviant to do what he did to them. These poor women, they've probably been victimized by other men before Robin. Maybe their fathers or some horrible past abusive boyfriends. They didn't understand how fucked up it was for a guy to uh, cut their nipples, make them bleed. Not normal sexual behavior. They didn't understand the difference between healthy sex and abuse. And I do know that some people are into shit like this in an, in an arguably healthy way. 
I know people make that argument. I know some people are into the surgical kink side of things, uh, subgenre of BDSM, pretty extreme subgenre. Uh, I would love to say I don't judge it, you know, no kink shame, but I do judge it. It concerns me. I'm sure there are healthy people who can handle a little healthy cutting or, you know, fucking whatever. Actually, I'm not sure that it's healthy, but I'm open to it being a possibility. I know we've talked about this before. I've gotten emails before. I just still believe that some people who want this, they want it because it's a form of abuse. Abuse that they're likely familiar with, reliving past trauma. For some, I think it's a reflection of poor self-worth. They want to be degraded, hurt, have their nipples sliced open, explored, or even worse, sadder, they don't want to be hurt, but are in the relationship anyway uh, with a sexually manipulative partner who wants to hurt them because they're too afraid if they stand up to that person, they're going to, uh, you know, be left alone. That person's, or, or that person's going to hurt them more than they're already hurting them. So they just take it. Obviously so fucking tragic and dark, right? He's a great guy, mom. He took me to the movies last month, even paid for the popcorn. I know, I know the blood you found in my bra upset you. It's not a big deal. He, he doesn't even cut my nipples up that bad. I mean, it hurts. I scream. That's what the ball gag's for. But when it's over, I'm so happy because he's so happy, right? Worst case, he cuts my nipples off. And then we just go to the hospital and have him sewn back on. I, I love him. Uh, these mutilations did lead to infections for a lot of the women he dated. Of course it did. Uh, for others, victims of the Ripper crew, it was part of the way that they would fucking die. Uh, despite all the evidence to the contrary, Gecht would deny that this, uh, you know, uh, mutilation slash obsession of his was some kind of criminal MO. He would say, ask your question about having sex with breasts. I have no real obsession with breasts in that form. Only a very sick person would even think that. Mm-hmm. Edward Spreister, right, Gex's alleged partner, would claim to police that Robin once became so furious with his wife, Rose, that he cut her fucking nipples off. Clean off. God, I hope that's not true, but I unfortunately think that it is true. Now I'm reimagining his family obsession with breasts, right? I'm picturing a whole family tree of just nippleless women. Was I, was I breastfed? Heck <laughs> no. Uh, no gicks get to eat from the teat. Because by the time that first child's born, those nipples, they're long gone. It's a gex right of passage. Taylor cut off those nips or get those nips cut off or bit off. Uh, we geck men love titties, but we fucking hate the nipples. Uh, there's a saying in the family. If you marry a gecked, you're getting titty blood on your neck. <laughs> you get it. And that's all I have to say about that. It's fucking disturbing. Uh, not surprisingly, Robin Gecked would refute all of this. Of course, he's a lying piece of shit like most of these dirtbags. I wish somebody would fucking kill him in prison. Uh, he would defend what he said was a normal breast obsession in a letter to author Jennifer Furio. Uh, a woman who wrote letters to numerous imprisoned serial killers for years, then published some of her correspondence in a book in 1998 called The Serial Killer Letters, A Penetrating Look Inside the Minds of Murderers. Jennifer said that Robin wrote the following to her. As for normal obsession with women's breasts, uh, what normal man out there hasn't? Not sure if you're larger than top or what. But if so, I'm sure you've walked down the street and had some guy notice you in your tits. Why? We're men. But that doesn't mean we cut them, have sex with them, because we have an obsession with large breasts of women. 65% of men are obsessed with tits. I'm sure you already know that. I'm not obsessed otherwise, or for any other reason, than a normal Joe. I love this fucking weirdo puts an exact percentage on men who are <laughs> obsessed with tits. Listen, lady, two-thirds of guys out there, two-thirds of guys, I'm, I'm just talking about straight guys. They love those titties. Normal Joe guys can't get enough of those titties, the bigger the better. All they want to do is fuck, slap, tickle, pinch, twist, cut, poke, put some gloves on, train them with the fucking speed bags, kick, bite, stab, shoot, uh, yeah, fucking play with them like a volleyball, hit with an axe, maybe even suck on, fuck on those titties. The other third, they're what I call sexual deviants. All they care about is that push and that butt. What, what's the deal with that? Ha! I don't get it. Why mess around with that messy stuff downstairs? Uh, get all confusing and sweating and whatnot. 
Doesn't always smell like roses if you catch my drift. When you can just focus on chewing on, taking a set of pliers to, maybe blowtorch and uh, the nipple and a couple of titties. Uh, other than Robin's exceptionally deviant fixation with breasts, an obsession, an obsession that would uh, be made to the public only after his arrest, there's little that sticks out about Robin's pre-crime life that we haven't already mentioned. We already know that some of his neighbors would say he frequently played loud music for neighborhood teens, let them hang out with him like a cool-ass titty guys want to do. Uh, teenagers were coming and going constantly. Marion Sparopoulos, a neighbor would say. One girl who was maybe 15 was staying overnight, wouldn't go home. Yeah, probably his teenage girlfriend. We know about her. Uh, you know, dating her when he's in his late 20s. Fucking like a cool dude. Wondering uh, what he was doing to her poor uh, teen titties. Hopefully she made it out with her nipples intact. Uh, one more thing. One neighbor would later tell a reporter that Geck used to talk a lot about the occult. Said he was especially fixated on the sacrifice rituals and body mutilation rituals of ancient cultures. Especially some unnamed ancient culture that apparently uh, would sever women's breasts and use them in rituals. Of course he was. Uh, I cannot figure out which culture he was talking about. I did some fucking weird-ass Googles added to a strange search history on my computer looking for ancient cultures that cut off titties and, you know, uh, worship them. Sacri- use them in rituals. Uh, Geck would plead guilty in February of 1980 to contribute, uh, contributing to the sexual delinquency of a minor, but there's not a ton of uh, information about that out there. Maybe that crime had something to do with the kids hanging around his place all the time. One of those kids was Catherine Bird, 14-year-old girlfriend of Geck's 22-year-old brother-in-law, Christina Cocorales, Andrew and Tommy's sister, also just a teen herself, uh, also one of the girls present. Uh, piecing info together from some of Robin's letters to Jennifer Furio, it seems like Christina later accused Robin of assaulting her while she was the Gex living babysitter. Robin also admitted that he had a sexual relationship with young Catherine, his brother-in-law's teen girlfriend for two years. It's fucking gross. So didn't maybe didn't have a huge arrest record, but just a fucking dirtbag. The rest of his arrest a record outside of the crimes we'll discuss the timeline uh, doesn't seem to exist anywhere online. Only one book was ever written about the Ripper crew, Deadly Thrills, the true story of Chicago's most shocking killers, and it's unfortunately been out of print for years. We got some info from articles referencing this book and from the author talking about it on some shows and documentaries, but uh, man, too bad we couldn't get a hold of an old used copy. Now let's move on to the next member of the crew. Eddie easily has the saddest of the Ripper's childhood tales. Edward Spreister was Gek's right-hand man, though man may be a little bit of an overstatement. He was just 21 at the time of the arrest for, of uh, Ripper crew murders. Born January 5th, 1961 in Chicago. He grew up on Chicago's West Side. His mother just 16 when uh, he was born, Judith Gajewski. Allegedly, no specific details on this. Ed was treated poorly as a child by his dad because Edward was slow, quote unquote. His mother would divorce his father when Ed was seven. Around that time, Edward had to repeat kindergarten. His mother would describe him as shy, withdrawn, and without friends. Poor little guy. No surprises. Also didn't get good grades. Preferred uh, helping the janitor sweep the floor to attending classes. What the fuck was going on at that school where they let him sweep the floor instead of staying in his class? Hey, Eddie, little buddy. We're about to work on some basic addition and subtraction. And there is, I mean, you know this. There's no way you're going to get it. Not a chance in hell. I mean, you know you're too dumb, even for the smallest numbers, right? So why even try? I mean, what's one plus one? Nope. Once again, five's not even close. That's what I'm talking about, Eddie. You little dingling. So how about you grab that broom? We went ahead and put your name on and you just go help uh, Mr. Jaworski clean the halls. Sometime around his parents' divorce, uh, Eddie and his family lived in a van for a couple years in the country when his mom was running from her husband, according to letters Ed sent from prison. So basically, his childhood was shit. Family and friends would testify during his sentencing hearing that he was a, a docile youth, bullied at school often. And just like his, uh, with his father, Ed wouldn't get along with his stepfather uh, either, who Judith married when Ed was 12. Eleanor Pupa, close friend of his mom's, would testify at Ed's trial that she had known the defendant since he was 10 years old, and she described him as 
shy, backwards, and pathetic. Uh, she said he, uh, she always felt that he was being punished and whipped a lot. Jesus Christ. He was pathetic. A pathetic kid with no friends who got bullied a lot, who helped the janitor instead of learning in class. Kid who lived in a fucking van for a while, hiding from a dad, who uh, then got whipped a lot by either his mom or his stepdad. What a childhood. Uh, Albert Zacha, Edward's classmate in the fourth through eighth grades, described him as slow, weird, and uncoordinated. Said he was a kid who didn't stand up for himself, often got beat up, and who cried a great deal. Fuck, hits just keep on coming for poor little Ed. If he would have just received more kindness, less abuse growing up, would he have become a, a much more well-adjusted kid who probably not uh, would have fallen in with the Ripper crew? Yeah, I imagine so. Towards the end of his brief academic career, Ed got picked uh, got picked on a lot for being in the same class as his younger sister, Jennifer. He was a couple years younger. She tutored him, helped him graduate from eighth grade. Eventually, took him three years. Uh, maybe. Some sources say it took him uh, three years to pass fifth grade. Either way, for fuck's sake. Uh, once in high school, Eddie rarely went to class and failed his freshman year. Because of his poor grades, he was not accepted into a local Catholic or vocational high school. And then after two years of failure in a public high school, he just stopped going. I mean, he kind of tried for two years to pass freshman year. I mean, at that point, who can fucking blame him? At the age of 18, after he's uh, after he has an accident, then with a family car, his parents ask him to leave home. So this poorly educated uh, kid has to go find some other place to live. Also, should he have, should he have uh, been driving? I mean, if you can't pass your freshman year of high school, not even with two fucking tries, should you maybe not be allowed to get a driver's license? There's probably a lot of licenses you shouldn't be able to get. Uh, according to his mom, his stepdad asked him to leave, throwing him out of their mobile home in the snow one day with no shoes on. <laughs> Fuck. And then lived with his dad for a while, the dude he'd hid from in a van for a couple of years, so I'm guessing life wasn't awesome with him. Then he got kicked out again, went to go live with his grandma, who also kicked him out. Uh, why? Don't know. I'm sure it was sad. I picture him always getting kicked out of a place into the snow for some reason. Right? And then this time when he's kicked out from grandma's, not only does he not have uh, shoes on, he, does, he doesn't have anything but his whitey tidies on. He has whitey tidies and he has that old janitor broom from grade school with his name written on it. And he's flung it over his shoulder, right? He's taken the broom end off and replaced it with like a fucking bandana with some shit in there, right? Like the classic image of the kid running away. He throws a little stick over their shoulder, you know, heads down the fucking train tracks. And Eddie's bag, it's, the only thing he has in there is his uh, driver's license, right? Because that's very important to him. And one additional pair of dirty underwear, right? Even dirtier than the, than the underwear he's wearing. It has some holes in it, big skid mark. After getting booted from his grandma's, Ed then basically moves from friend to friend, couch surfing, getting kicked out of one place after another. I picture him again. He always gets fucking kicked out in the snow. And now he he always only has undies on and that's fucking stick. And the undies he's wearing, they're just growing thinner, more full of holes. The one in his, his little bandana is even worse. Skid mark in the back. It's so solid and thick. Looks like someone sewed a fucking patch onto a pair of whitey tidies. Eddie attempted to work at his stepdad's scrap iron business at some point in this area, uh, but quit because the job required too much strenuous labor that he didn't like. <laughs> around this time uh he's convicted in september 1979 of uh stealing a car i don't know maybe he got caught because he probably fucking crashed it right after stealing it because he didn't know how to drive for shit uh he's convicted march 1980 for for theft uh additional theft not just the car probably stole a fucking i don't know pair of undies new pair of undies not any uh more previous criminal record details emerged that we could find Ed then worked at Burger King and Winchell's Donuts. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Before he could take the job that brought him into the Ripper crew. Working for Robin Geck. You ever eaten at a Winchell's Donuts? You might think you have, but maybe you haven't. Any Winchell's Donuts you have eaten at since 2004 are a fucking lie. They're bought by Yum Yum that year. And the company just uh, didn't bother, you know, changing the name of those locations because it was too much, too costly. Uh, Winchell's used to have the best commercials. Here's one from uh, back when Ed would have been working with the the Ripper crew. 
winchels while you work. Winchels while you play. Winchels while you winchels while you work and while you play. The best time to winchels is all the time because whether you like chocolate or glazed, cake or raised donuts, all no of one makes them like winchels. And you can always get 50 cents off any dozen winchels donuts. What? So treat yourself to winchels, one at a time or by the dozen. Winchels while you work. Winchels while you play. Winchels while you winchels while you work and while you play. Wow, Winchels! Sorry, I couldn't uh, oh, couldn't catch the end off there. Uh, how creepy that so many people who went to uh, whatever Winchels location he worked at, it never said uh, in the sources which, which exact location, were getting their donuts handed to them by a guy who was fucking cutting titties off when he wasn't at work and just raping and killing. That's so weird to think about like how serial killers interact with the public during their jobs. Yeek! How did Ed meet Robin Gecht? According to a letter, Ed would write to Jennifer Furio, uh, on his 20th birthday, some friends threw him a birthday party. At the party, he meets Christina Cocorales. They start dating. They will date for about 15 months. Christina was Andrew, right? Thomas Cocorales' sister. As we learned, also babysat for Robin Gecht. Um, he was, you know, getting fucking sexually harassed. I'm sure getting at least a titty twister from that son of a bitch. Uh, Gecht offered to train him as a contractor. Initially, Ed's friends and family were fucking stoked, right? They encouraged him to get, get all you can out of this new trade. Uh, they would later be shocked to find out exactly what he had gotten out of uh, his time with Robin, of course. For the first five months or so of Edward's employment, something uh, everything seemed normal, as normal as you can get when you're working for uh, working for a habitual titty abuser in his late 20s who's constantly hanging around a bunch of teens, uh, at least one of whom he's fucking. Things stopped seeming uh, kind of normal one day when Robin snapped, as Ed would put it. Eddie said that Robin cut off his wife's nipples then made him drive her to the hospital where she would stay for five days, hopefully having her fucking nipple sewn back on. Hopefully to quote Sheila from last week sucks, she had a pair of tough titties. Even if they were tough, they wouldn't just grow back though. Not when they've been completely removed, right? Ah! Uh, when Edward saw Gekta again and again, I don't know, maybe she could have him sewn back on. Uh, this is all according to Ed. Robin threatened him into keeping quiet, right? When the two met, met again. He wrote, when Robin found me, I was told that he had pictures of me fucking his wife and that I was the one who would cut her nipples off and he could kill me. And if I went to the police, I would be locked up. So if Robin actually had pictures of Ed and his wife, Rose, having sex, Ed says they never had sex. Well, who knows? He did say some weird shit. He said that in June or July of 1992, Rose was laying out in the sun while Ed was painting around the, the windows of the Gecht house. Ed knew, <laughs> this is what he said for some reason, that Robin didn't like his wife to have tan lines. So he offered, out of the goodness of his heart, to put some sunscreen on Rose's titties. <laughs> this is so stupid. He's just being a nice guy. He's fucking helping out his, his buddy's wife's titties with sunscreen. He knows. Man, Robin's going to be so mad when your titties get all burnt. Let me help you out. Right? We all get that. It's just a normal thing to do. Uh, as far as we know, it didn't go any further than that. <laughs> but even if it never went any further than that, what the fuck is happening with these people? If for some reason you're listening, okay, for some reason, you listening, if you don't know, unless they have some kind of open relationship, you probably should not lather up your friend's wife's or your boss's wife's uh, titties with some sunscreen unless she doesn't have arms or something and can't do it herself. But even in that rare scenario, you got to check with their partner before you start lathering up those titties. Also, how the fuck did Rose explain losing her nipples and not implicate anyone in some horrific case of domestic violence when she went to the hospital? Right? What is she saying? It was an accident, doctor. I'm fine. I just, I'm, I, uh, I, I fell down the stairs and I landed, I landed on my tits 
And we have very sharp stairs. I'm I'm actually not even the first person to lose their nips on those godforsaken stairs. I keep telling our landlord, you got to fix the stairs. They're too sharp. They're real rough on the titties, even the toughest of titties. By the time our lease is up, there's not going to be nipples left in the whole damn family. Uh, Ed later claimed that Robin's threat was uh, enough to get him under his thumb. But is that true? It sounds like bullshit. Because he was borderline mentally handicapped, would that be enough to make him go along with Robin's bullshit? No, we fucking went over that. It would not. He did have some other things going on, though, to be fair to him. Uh, possibly. In Edward's defense trial, Dr. Kent Moore, clinical psychologist, uh, witness for the defense, said that Edward had what's called a schizoid personality. It means that Edward had deep-rooted feelings of in- inadequacy and insecurity related to people in very inferior, withdrawn ways. Dr. Moore claimed that Edward responded to his environment in a very impulsive manner, lacking the ability to weigh details and evaluate their relative importance. In new or unique situations, he claimed that Ed would be immobilized or respond in a very immature way. And uh, that he was likely to follow other people's directions as to what to do. Basically had a very passive personality dependent on others. Get the fuck out of here. Does, does that mean he should be let off the hook? No. But I'd be lying if I said, if, if, if I didn't say, you know, I, I feel a little bad for this guy. Uh, psychologists also testified that Ed had an underlying anger uh, and potential for explosiveness, which combined with his schizoid personality, low intelligence, and meeting Robin, ultimate tough on titties man, Gecht, made him very dangerous. Ed would follow up all these claims, particularly about his own passivity in his testimony, saying that he didn't know beforehand that Geck was planning to murder the Ripper crew's first victim, Linda Sutton. According to Ed, uh, Geck was just supposed to drive Ed to Chicago to pick up some tools, right? Then take him back to Winchell's, where he was still working, right? Of course, we went over that so they could fix his car in the parking lot there. Later that night, when Geck took Linda Sutton into the bushes, Eddie heard her moan. He said he felt scared, didn't know what to do. He admitted, however, that he did not call the police or an ambulance when he saw Linda lying on the ground bleeding, also offered no resistance when he said Gex told him to go get a wire from the van, bring it back, use it to cut off Linda's fucking titty. That wire detail they mention over and over in sources is so disturbing. And they will allude to how that they, these guys used it to cut off these women's breasts. I hate to think about it, but the piano wire they used, uh, it's very similar to wire commonly used to cut blocks of cheese. You can just do a quick YouTube video if you want to see what that fucking looks like. If you want this ridic- ridiculous, savage detail in your brain. Uh, my grandparents uh, had a small cheese cutter. They used wire when I was growing up. Uh, worked great. They, they still use them. A lot of people still have them. It looks like, kind of looks like a floss stick or like a paint roller brush handle shape, right? That, a handle with a roller at the end that's, that runs horizontal or perpendicular to the handle. And then attached to the roller is a wire that runs parallel to it, sticks out a little bit further from it. And you can adjust these knobs at the end of the, uh, you know, at the, at the end of like the roller part of the device for lack of a better term to make that wire move farther away from the roller or closer to it and then with the rectangular block of cheese you just you just push the roller down on one end of the cheese and then where the wire then just slides into the cheese and cuts you like a perfect little slice it actually does work pretty awesome uh the piano wire they had very similar to that a little bit thicker very sharp. You've probably seen it used in mafia movies when a guy in the back seat fucking throws wire around a guy's neck in the front seat and just slices into his neck, chokes him, and kind of like savagely, you know, uh, cuts his uh, vein arteries in his neck. Stainless steel spring wire connected between two handles. They sell it on Amazon. It seems that they would wrap this wire around someone's breast, right? They got these two like wooden handles typically, and then this wire in between, wrap it around someone's breast, coil it around and around, and then just fucking violently cinch it just to tight. Just violently pull it tight, almost like you're tying your shoelaces, pulling that tight, and that would just fucking sever the breast, right? Because there's no bone. It's just mostly skin, you know, and fat. Ah! And, and, and it would, oftentimes the person that they were doing this to would be alive when this is happening. Holy 
fuck, that must've been brutally painful. Never heard of anything like that before. It has to be one of the more brutal things we've talked about here. And we've talked about so many brutal things. Too bad the families of the victims weren't allowed to use some of that piano wire to squeeze these guys' dicks and balls off, right? That seems fair to me. Also makes me want to throw up when I think about it. But they should have been allowed to wrap some piano wire around these guys' dicks and just fucking cinch their dicks off. Maybe we should start doing that to more pedophiles. Uh, in the weeks that followed Linda being murdered and her breast being sliced off, Eddie would say uh, he tried to avoid Gecht, but the Gecht just kept pestering him to go, quote, driving around. Just come drive. Come on. Just go driving around. Just go find some of those titties. After repeatedly refusing, then maybe getting threatened, or maybe just really wanting to, uh, Ed claimed he, he agreed uh, on these excursions. He said that he and Gecht would pick up prostitutes and then many times Gecht would uh, merely have sex with them and not hurt them. Uh, did he not hurt them? Or did he maybe just not hurt them bad enough for them to go to the police? I'm guessing they at least got their nipples bit. Uh, during this period, tightening his control over the young man he'd brought under his sway, Gecht offered job, uh, Ed a job in his electrical business. Ed accepts. Uh, he'd say his desire to learn a trade, provide for himself better was what made him stay around Gecht for so long. Uh, through the murders of almost 20 women. Get the fuck out of here. No one stays that long for a job opportunity if they hate this. Does anyone want a job so bad they'll go along with almost 20 brutal murders? Rapes, ritual eating of semen-covered, severed breasts. Nope. Uh, Ed would say he felt incredibly guilty about the murders. Did he? Uh, Wasn't guilty enough to uh, stop him, go forward. Wasn't guilty enough to not have a fucking boner when he was doing uh, all the raping. Uh, some would claim for his criminal defense, Ed just didn't realize the true extent, right? Uh, because he wasn't smart enough, which I don't buy for a second. On uh, his mind, explains Dr. Krenz, psychologist, he had been welcomed into a family. He still thinks these rituals are about bonding, not about killing. What the fuck is wrong with some of these psychologists? Uh, the, some of these ones that testified for the defense, I just fucking hate him so much. And I'm a former psych major, but man, there are so many fucking quacks out there. Uh, when you ask him if he killed, he doesn't know how to define the permanency of that. Uh-huh. I doubt that very much. In another letter to Jennifer Furio, he'd say, don't get me wrong. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a sick mind. I will, I have and will always have a fascination for breasts, legs, feet, ass, and everything else on a female body. My years as a teen, and even some six years ago, was why I love breasts. As a teen, I loved girls. I loved the feel of their bodies. I was kicked out of a grade school for having sex. Hmm. I loved having sex on buses, in cabs, on trains. Yes, so people can watch. Yes, I was coerced into this. Me by myself would never, ever hurt a woman. How could I? God put them on earth and made them look so beautiful and sexy. I am ever so glad of this. (laughs) Ah, this fucking guy's full of shit. He's not smart and he's full of shit. Uh, Cabs, this guy, this guy was fucking in cabs. Mm, Was he? Wild times in Chicago. Uh, Another letter he'd say, I read of a lady who had pleased 300 men in 10 hours. And another girl wants to do 400. They will have this on every talk show soon. I don't understand things like this. My first thought, where did they get 300 men? (laughs) I I would feel some have wives, kids. This was all videotaped and is on sale worldwide. I don't see how anyone can be proud of this. The women or the men. I can look in the paper and find a job, even pushing a broom for $5 an hour. That will be fine by me. I wonder what this women's family thinks. 300 men and one will go for 400. <laughs> God, he writes this. Ouch. How could someone think of doing this? Is he fucking being honest when he writes this shit? Or is he just smart enough to at least know how to write Jennifer what he thinks she wants to hear? I think that for sure. This is a fucking piece of shit. Uh, let's now meet the last two in the Ripper crew before jumping in the timeline. The Cocorales brothers. Uh, gonna start with Andy. 
He was born July 23rd, 1963 in Villa Park, Illinois, western suburb again of Chicago. Live a pretty short life, dying by lethal injection in 1999 at the age of 35. Good riddance. The only one of the Ripper crew members to receive lethal injection. Back in 1982, when the Ripper crew was doing most of the ripping, he was just a 19-year-old. Like with the other guys, we don't know a lot about his childhood. Seems to have had a rough childhood. Uh, abusive father, no shocker, considering who he'd become. Uh, grew up in Villa Park. Uh, and growing up there, Andrew and Tommy's father would require his family to attend services at the local Greek Orthodox Church three days a week. Lived next to Robin from 1974 to 1979 before he went full psycho killer, at which point Robin moved to Chicago. And then uh, the three men would unfortunately stay in touch. Did they know how super dark he was before he moved? Maybe, maybe not, but I I bet they did. I doubt he presented himself as a fucking gentleman before. Uh, Andy started working for Robin in mid-1991, right around the time the Ripper crew started killing. He'd worked for him well into the killing spree. Uh, and, uh, you know, his sister was, again, Gex living babysitter for, for his three kids. Also met Ed Spritzer, right, who, uh, who dated his sister. Andy would uh, get his older brother Tommy involved in all this. There would be some evidence brought up in court that Andy may have had a sociopathic personality disorder. That would never be fully explained. I, I've, all these fucking guys had to be sociopaths, I would think, to be able to go along with all this shit. Well, let's talk lastly about Tommy. Tommy Corrales. Uh, Tommy was born July 10th, 1961, making him 21 at the time of his arrest, like Ed. He was born in Villa Park, like his younger brother. Experts also described him as a people pleaser with a low IQ, like Eddie Spritzer. Uh, his defense team painted him as a man who unwittingly became tangled up in a police investigation while trying to, all he wanted to do was help his brother. And along the way, he got caught up in some tough titties. He was he was like, I just want to get you out of here. And then someone's like, cut that titty off. And he's like, okay. Uh, get the fuck out. Uh, high school dropout. Tommy also, like his brother Andy, you know, tough childhood, same childhood. Uh, his dad apparently once tied Tommy shirtless to a table, lashed him 15 times with a belt when he found out he was uh, using drugs. Seems extreme, but not trying to defend his parents, but I will say, Uh, people in the late 70s way more belt happy than they are now. Uh, No info on what those drugs may have been. Some sources say weed, cocaine, doesn't really matter to the story. Tommy's mom died when he was only 17 and when Andy, uh, his little brother, was 15. Soon after Tommy left home, got, uh, you know, work as carpenter and painter, skills that helped him land in the circle that would become the Ripper Crew. When he joined what would become the Ripper Crew, he was drinking heavily, using drugs. I'm sure that made all the heinous shit easier to do. Uh, Jumping way ahead a little bit, Tommy will end up being the one member of the Ripper crew to be released to the public after fully serving his sentence. One Ripper brother executed, the other set free. That's fun. He's a free man right now. Uh, 2019, he was released in prison, registered as a sex offender, uh, began living in a halfway house at Wayside Cross, a Bible-based Christ-centered recovery center for broken, addicted, and abused people, as, as they describe it, located in the Chicago suburb of Aurora. Many would protest against the man who assisted in the killings of, uh, you know, who knows how many of those uh, 18 women uh, they didn't want him to be living in their neighborhoods. Thomas would respond with, I want to be a better Christian and I will do my best to become a productive member of society. I will not be a threat to Aurora and their citizens. I swear to that. I'm willing to work hard to change my ways. I don't like that last sentence. I'm willing to work hard to change my ways, right? I'm guys. I'm trying so hard not to cut off any more titties and come on them and eat them. I'm doing my best, gosh dang. Uh, Tommy insisted uh, it would make no sense to jeopardize his newfound freedom because he's seen too many ex-offenders go home and two weeks or a month later, they're back in. Yeah, but how many people say that? Uh, I want no contact with the families of the murder victims, he said. I want to just go, he didn't say murder victims, parenthetical. He said, I want no contact with the families. I want to just go on with my life and be left alone. Yeah, I bet those women he helped rape and kill who had their breasts cut off wanted to be left alone too. 
Fuck what you want. Uh, Tommy now lives on a tight schedule that includes daily Bible classes, uh, uh, eight-hour workday in the Wayside Warehouse, uh, time in the chapel. His days begin at 5.30 a.m. and when lights are out at 10 p.m. Or at least he lived like that when the Chicago Tribune wrote a story about him uh, shortly after his release in 2019. Who the fuck knows where he is today? Hopefully, face, uh, face down, dead in gutter. Hopefully not uh, slanging donuts somewhere. Understandably, given what we'll soon uh, you know, detail, uh, many simply don't feel safe with Tommy out in the world. Gail Myers, a juror on his trial years ago, would tell the Chicago Tribune that Tommy's people-pleaser personality does not make up for the attacks he committed. He said he was a follower and slow, but he could have stopped it. I remember listening to the tape. He said, I put the key in the door to the motel where the victim was taken. To me, that's enough. He could have done something to help her, but he did nothing. He went along with it. And in my opinion, should never be allowed to get out. Yeah, agreed. All right, now that we've met the Ripper crew, let's chronologically march through many of their super fucked up deeds in today's Time Suck timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. 
I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now let's look at how the Ripper crew terrorized the streets of Chicago for a year and a half in the early 1980s. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. On May 23, 1991, Linda Sutton, a 26-year-old mother of two, goes missing near Wrigley Field, believed to be the Ripper crew's first victim. The best details we have as to what may have happened to her, based on the court testimony of Edward Spreister at his murder trial, a trial where he'd be found guilty of murder and aggravated kidnapping. Between interrogations and trials, he would give three different versions of what happened. All of them, of course, are terrible. And before I get into them, I just want to point out that after their arrest, all four men would give slightly varying accounts of what happened during the Ripper Crew's murders, rapes, and tortures, right? It became a game of he said, he said, he said, he said. Of course, everyone's trying to downplay how involved they were. So many of the murders, you know, we don't know exactly who was in the van when the women were abducted, uh, who was there participating, exactly where they were harmed. Um, I strongly suspect that all four men were involved in a lot more Ripper Crew murders than any of them would ever admit to or would be charged with. Uh, when it was all said and done, uh, Spritzer would confess to four of the murders, including rape and sexual assault, and to an additional count of attempted murder. Uh, Andy Cocorales would be convicted of one count of murder, aggravated kidnapping, and the rape of Rose Davis, and uh, then to the murder and aggravated kidnapping of Lori Borowski. Uh, Tommy Cocorales only ended up being found guilty of the murder of Lori Borowski. That's all just one woman, you know, raped, beaten, and fucking murdered who had her breast wired off. Uh, good thing he's out. And, you know, and uh, praying and stuff right now and trying to be good at titties. Uh, Robin Gecht, not guilty of any murders, 
these motherfuckers were all involved in a lot more than they ended up getting convicted of. Uh, there were plea deals that gave them, uh, you know, got them off of a lot of charges. Uh, there were many crimes that prosecutors just chose not to prosecute because they just didn't have enough evidence thanks to DNA not being a tool back then. Okay, now back to Spreister's three slightly varying accounts of what happened to Linda. In May of 81, Spreister was living in the Brer Rabbit Motel in Villa Park, working at Winchell's Donuts. Other three rippers also sometimes rented rooms at this and other, you know, local motels known for sex workers. Linda's body will be found a week after her disappearance outside the motel. On the night of May 23rd, when when Eddie's car wouldn't start at Winchell's, you know, that we mentioned earlier, Robin swings by in his 1975 Dodge Red Work Van. Robin and Eddie drive to Chicago. Eddie first claimed it was just to get some tools to fix the car, but then he later admitted they had decided to, quote, pick up some horse. Uh, When they reached the corner of Broadway and Addison Streets, Robin parked the van, told Eddie to get into the back of it and wait. When he had the woman he wanted, Robin would tap twice on the uh, separate, like a little separator between the front and the back of the van. Then Eddie would come out of the van and help him do whatever horrible shit that they had planned to do. And I think they for sure had a lot of specific plans going into this. Eddie would, uh, you know, he kept wording everything in odd, fairly nonsensical ways. He truly wasn't a real bright man. But basically it seems uh, to me that they didn't just intend to pick up some woman and pay for sex. They intended from the very beginning to hurt and or kill her, abuse her in ways that I feel like he just never wanted to admit. Eddie said that once they had the woman, Robin told him uh, they would, quote, take care of the whore and assured Eddie that they wouldn't get into any trouble. Not long after sneaking into the back of the van, Eddie heard Robin talking to some woman inside. It would be Linda. He described her as having a black female voice. She then entered, you know, the the front part of the van. After a brief discussion, Eddie, still hiding in the back, said that Robin gave her a couple of pills. The three then drove west for approximately half an hour back towards Villa Park. When the van stopped, the defendant now heard two taps. He takes uh, off, you know, leaves the back of the van, uh, meets Gecht outside the front passenger door. Gecht now holding a pair of handcuffs and a knife. Black woman, whom Eddie uh, will later identify from a photograph as Linda Sutton, sit in the front passenger seat. Spritzer said that Gecht pulled her out of the van, handcuffed her wrist, then pushed her into a wooded or bushy area short distance from the van. After Gecht and Sutton had been alone in the bushes for roughly five minutes, Spritzer said he heard Sutton moaning and saying, what are you doing to me? Why are you doing this? Then hearing Gecht whistle, uh, Spritzer said he went over to the bushes where he saw that Gecht had already cut off of one of, uh, cut off one of Sutton's breasts. And was, quote, this is so fucking gross, having sex with the area where the breast had been severed. What the fuck that exactly means, I don't even want to know. Uh, he said that Sutton's severed breast was lying next to her in the grass. Eddie said that Gecht now told him to go back to the van, get some wire. Eddie did, came back, said Gecht, uh, uh, you know, used the wire to cut off this other breast. Then Eddie said he had sex with the area where the other breast had been removed. What the fuck? Eddie and others would really lean into this whole sentiment of they didn't want to do any of this. It was Robin coercing, threatening them all into it. Bullshit. He didn't have a gun to their heads. Short of having a gun to your head, how could, you know, you feel pressured enough into uh, fucking some woman's bloody chest where her breast once was? A woman who might not even be dead by this point, right? He wasn't limp when he was doing this. He was erect. That's some evil shit. After Eddie had finished, which I read as ejaculated, he said that Gecht picked up the wire and the two severed breasts Took them back to the van. Sutton, still laying in the bushes, hands cuffed behind her back. And then the two men fled the scene. Uh, Gecht driving Eddie to his mom's house. Oh, man. Uh, Mom, you'll never believe what uh, uh, Robin and I did tonight. Hey, hey, can you put these two tits in the fridge for us? I don't want them to spoil. Uh, Later, in a second statement given to Assistant State's uh, Attorney Buke on November 8th, 1982, 
Eddie gave a differing version of these events. In this statement, Eddie now said that three of the Rippers were there that night, not just two. He said that Andy Cocorales also present when Linda Sutton was picked up. Three of them in the van now. He said that Sutton began to scream when Robin pulled her into the van, right? So just straight up abducted her. Said that Cocorales sitting up front started punching her, then threw her into the rear of the van. So this is a very different uh, description. Uh, she then continued to scream. And then he said that both he and Cocorales both in the back of the van now, quote, punched her several times in the face until she shut up. Then Robin drove them to Brer Rabbit Motel, where they took her into Eddie's motel room, uh, where she was gagged, handcuffed to the bedposts, and then Gecht, Cocorales, and Eddie all took turns raping her, brutally. At several points, Cocorales uh, stuck a Coke bottle into her vagina. God knows what else she endured. Later, they took her from the motel, then killed her. No exact, exact details as to how. Uh, and he again says that Robin Coat cut both her breasts off and then all three men each had sex on or fucking in her chest. I don't know. Finally, in one last statement, given three days after that last statement, Eddie admitted that he supposedly on Gex's orders removed one of the breasts, not Robin removing both of them, and that he took it back to the van. <sighs> Christina Cocorales will later remember that her brothers were at the family home, also in Villa Park, you know, around four, uh, around four or six o'clock uh, and that she didn't see them again. So four or six o'clock the day of the murder, she didn't see them again until the following morning around nine or nine to 30 AM. They were out all night doing shit, doing this shit. Yeek. And that next day, uh, they went to visit their mom's grave. Family left the cemetery, cemetery around one o'clock that afternoon. Neither Nick nor Christina would remember their other siblings, at least one of which had been raping and torturing and killing a woman the night before acting the least bit strangely. Week later, June 1st, 1981, it's raining when three detectives go to check on a call about a corpse discovered at the Moonlit Hotel in Villa Park, right near this Br'er Rabbit Hotel. Uh, the call, not much of a surprise since the hotel, you know, located among many other fucking similar hotels, motels, fast food places, junkie shops, known for uh, a long list of shady characters. A place where you can meet someone for quick sex, find about any kind of drug fix, you know, a skid row of sorts. The discovery the detectives made would go far beyond their day-to-day -day violence uh, that they were used to in Villa Park, though. Hotel maid uh, first brought the smell to someone's attention. She reported a terrible odor from somewhere near the hotel that grew worse by the day. The Moonlit's manager walked out into a trash-strewn field behind the hotel to see what he could do to get rid of it, found the source of the smell, which was not as expected, a dead animal. It was a young woman whose remains consisted largely of bones and clinging flesh. I'm always amazed at how fast sometimes uh, bodies can decompose. It was Linda Sutton's body. She'd only been dead a week, but she'd been left out, exposed to the elements. Uh, the manager immediately called the, pol the police. Detectives arrived shortly thereafter. The remains were so decomposed that they could see her skeletal structure. Uh, maggots were there doing their work. An unusual combination of post-mortem characteristics were present. Also apparent that the woman clearly had been murdered because she had been handcuffed. Also had cloth in her mouth, used as a gag. Still wore a sweater and panties. They'd been pulled down to her thighs. Uh, this indicated that whoever attacked her had restrained her, but for how long and why, they didn't know. In her socks was a small wad of dollar bills, so robbery, probably not a motive. Also knew that the practice of rolling money inside socks probably indicated she had been a sex worker. Uh, that left assault and rape. Uh, the detective's first job was to establish the corpse's identity, then figure out the time interval from the moment of her discovery to the moment she died. In the condition the body was in, that would be very difficult. In 1981, there was no body farm, no institution set up in Knoxville, Tennessee to help establish time of death for remains like this. Uh, investigators also needed to establish whether this was the primary crime scene or, or where she had been killed or a secondary scene where she had been dumped after being killed. The fact that no one had yet reported the body indicated that it might not have been there that long. 
However, the possibility implied that whoever had killed her was able to tolerate decomposing remains long enough to carry them, place them uh, there. One thing the detectives knew that they could check was the soil beneath her body to determine whether bodily fluids had leaked into it or not. First, they had to deliver the body to the deputy coroner, uh, coroner Pete Siegman, uh, so that he could attempt to determine the cause and manner of death, as well as take fingerprints and teeth impressions to compare to records if they existed. Uh, then they could stake out the scene, start searching for other evidence. The fact that Linda was a sex worker made the process of identifying her more difficult, since as we've known uh, from previous sucks, police often have trouble identifying sex workers because they lead a transient lifestyle, don't keep in the best of contact with friends and family. Uh, the fingerprints, dental records helped, and in less than two weeks, they did ID her as Linda Sutton, 26. As they suspected, she proved to be a sex worker with a string of arrests, also the mom of two kids, both of whom lived with Sutton's mom. Uh, and then the examination of her body would reveal a brutal ordeal. Despite the advanced state of decomposition, the coroner determined she'd only been dead for less than a week. The remains advanced rate of decomposition was due to two rather large wounds on her chest where her breasts had been removed, which allowed for a massive invasion of parasites that devoured her body in record time. Quickly it became apparent that Linda had been tortured, gang raped, sodomized, mutilated while alive, then killed and dumped. The evidence suggested Sutton had been kidnapped by a sadist, uh, police had nothing in the way of solid clues, though, to figure out who the sadist was. And the Ripper crew wouldn't strike again for over 10 months uh, to give them more clues. February 12th, 1982. Now an unnamed 35-year-old cocktail waitress is abducted from her car. When investigators arrive at her vehicle, they see the car's gas gauge is on empty. They theorize she'd run out of gas, possibly sought help. Then her, you know, helper or helpers abducted her. Her purse was sitting on the front seat with money inside, keys still in the ignition, they initially hoped, of course, that they could find her alive. That hope quickly lost. A search turned up her nude body on an embankment near the road. She'd been raped, tortured, and mutilated. The press was asked not to report that one of her breasts had been amputated so that the police could retain that detail for interrogation purposes. A few days later, the body of an unnamed Hispanic woman wearing an engagement ring is discovered. She'd also been raped and strangled. While her breasts had not been removed, they had been badly bitten and, quote, brutalized. Uh, her killer had also masturbated over her body. A psychiatric assessment of this crime pegged the attacker as a local man, this is so weird, who probably loved animals and also had a family. How the fuck, how did they get that from those details? Hmm, he badly bit her breast, jerked off on her body, and raped and strangled her. Well, clearly, we're dealing with an animal lover. And he for sure has kids and a wife. What? Uh, also had a dark side that no one knew, of course, turning into a cruel psychopathic murder at night. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, they would actually get a lot of details wrong as in the early, uh, you know, moments of this investigation into who's killing these women, including the fact that it wasn't one person, but four. Uh, you know, but again, before the era of DNA testing, they just didn't have a lot of evidence to go on. The Ripper crew would strike again just a few months later. May 15th, 1982, Lorraine Lorianne Borowski, just 21, was scheduled to open the Elmhurst Realtor's office where she worked. But employees turned up for work that morning, found the office locked, and also found her shoes and scattered contents from her purse thrown about outside the door. Police were called at once, but then five months would pass before they got any answers as to her disappearance. Very few details of how Lori was killed were ever given. Again, the main details come from the testimony of Eddie Spreister, who said that he and Gecht were out prowling in the murder van late in the night of the 14th and early in the morning of the 15th looking for a girl. Uh, when they couldn't find who they wanted, they stopped to eat, drink some beer, Around 7 a.m. the morning of the 15th, Eddie said he went to sleep in the back of the van and then he woke up to someone screaming. Said that Robin had parked the van in a cemetery. When he looked outside, he said he saw Gecht near a tombstone stabbing a white woman. Said he walked towards Gecht who told him to return to the van. 
which he did, he said. And then five minutes later, Gecht uh, returned holding a knife and a severed breast. Uh-huh. I don't fucking believe that. I believe that they both did it. Uh, at least those two. After that brutal night, the Ripper crew would go on to claim numerous other victims before Lori's remains would be found. Two weeks later, May 29th, Shu Mock, 30 years old, of Lombard, western suburb again of Chicago, disappears in Hanover Park, another western suburb of Chicago. After an argument with the brother, while the two were driving home from the family's Streamwood restaurant, Shui Mack got out of the car never to be seen alive again, at least not by anyone other than the Ripper crew. Her body would be discovered about four months later in a field in South Barrington, northwestern suburb of Chicago. The cause of her death determined to be fractures to her skull and ribs. According to Spicer's testimony, he was riding in the van with Gecht 2 a.m. sometime in late May of 1992 when they spotted a young Asian woman, Shui, on the side of the road. Gek told Spritzer to go to the rear of the van. A few, mo- few moments later, Gek talked uh, Shui, who uh, Spritzer remembered, spoke with an Asian accent into entering the van. Gek then drove for 50 to 20 minutes before pulling over and tapping twice on the uh, little divider again. Spritzer then popped out of the rear of the van with a knife and a roll of wire, fucking ready to go. Sounds pretty into it to me. Uh, Gek then dragged a streaming, screaming Shui out of the van, punched her in the face and ribs until she was quiet. Then he dragged her over into some bushes. Spreister held a wire around her neck while Gecht cut both her fucking breasts off with more wire. Then Gecht told Spreister to go get a jagged edge knife from the van. When Eddie returned with the knife, he said that Gecht uh, had his penis inside of the woman's chest wounds. Fucking gross. Gecht then took the knife from Eddie, used it to repeatedly cut into Shui's abdomen, who may uh, somehow have still been alive at this point. I don't know how the fuck that's possible. And then those two sick fucks finished up, hopped in the van, drove away together. Probably went and grabbed some beers, you know, before they headed back to Robin's place for a little, a satanic circle jerk, a little all-you-can-eat semen and severed breast buffet. Uh, and then again, just about two weeks later, June 13th, 1982, 23-year-old woman named Angel York is attacked on Chicago's North side. Angel was a sex worker, thought that the man picking her up in a red van was simply another John, so she climbed in. Immediately, she's handcuffed. Uh, the Ripper crew then forces her to slash into one of her own breasts before dumping her body onto the roadside, assuming she's dead. Miraculously, she will survive. She was able to report to police that two men were using a red van to abduct women and torture them. She told him that when she'd cut into her own breast, one of the men, likely Robin, uh, went into a fucking frenzy. He then cut her more and, dear God, masturbated into her breast wound before closing it off with duct tape, then dumped her in the street. Guess uh, Satan wanted him to shake up his fucking tit ritual. Uh, Before police could identify the owner of this red van and thus Angel's attackers, the Ripper crew struck again and again and again and again. Month and a half later, August 28th, Sandra Delaware, 18-year-old sex worker, raped, stabbed, mutilated, strangled. Her wrists bound together behind her back with a shoelace this time. Uh, Her left breast completely removed. Her bra uh, found knotted around her throat. Her autopsy reveals the cause of her death is ligature strangulation and an abdominal stab wound, which penetrated her liver. Her body found under the Fullerton Avenue Bridge on the north branch of the Chicago River. Another victim would soon be found in a similar condition. September 8th, body of Rose Beck Davis, 30-year-old marketing executive from Broadview, found in Chicago's Gold Coast neighborhood. She's found in a gangway of a North Lakeshore apartment building, badly decomposed. We actually have some testimony from a different Ripper crew member, Andy Cocorales, explaining how this attack went down from his point of view. He said that he and Spritzer seized Rose, who was walking on the street, forced her into the van where they uh, put handcuffs on her. He did, actually, Andy, while Spritzer gagged her. Eddie would admit to being the one who killed her, strangling her until she was dead with one of her stockings. When exactly he killed her in the mess of torture they enacted upon her is unknown. 
At the gangway, Gekt hit her in the face while he pulled her slacks down. Gekt raped her, later struck her in the face with a hatchet, then forced the handle of the hatchet into her vagina. Acting at Gek's direction, Cocorales said he then took a knife and poked at her midsection three or four times. Okay. Eventually, when the men present were done with this orgy of rape and violence, they went back to the van, drove off, abandoning Rose's body on the gangway. When investigators found her, ligature was fixed tightly on her neck, one of her arms, her sweater raised, and her bra ripped off, and slash wounds on, you know, her breasts, one of them gone. Her slacks and underpants found around her ankles. Uh, her face covered in blood. Pathologists would later find that Rose's nose had been broken. Deep cuts evident on her breasts and abdomen uh, full of small punctures. There were contusions in several places on her body, a four-inch long piece of wood, what the fuck, found inside her vagina. They had inserted it so violently it perforated her vaginal wall and actually entered the rest of her abdominal cavity. God damn. Faced with mounting pressure, uh, police decided to bring in experts to help them now. They asked Robert Ressler. We've talked about him before from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, BSU, uh, to get a profile. And uh, he didn't give a good one this time. They can't all be home runs. He indicated this woman's attacker was uncertain about his sexuality and probably bisexual. And he expected the man to look somewhat effeminate. I wouldn't say any of these guys really looked effeminate. Uh, The BSU had no fucking idea what was going on with these attacks. They had never encountered anything like the Ripper crew. On September 30th, 1982, Schwemach's skeletal remains found in a wooded area near a new housing development in the northwest part of Cook County. Her body clothed, sweater and zipper on her slacks, both torn, necklace found in the remains helped identify her. October 6, 1982, in a seemingly random act, uh, Rafael Torado, 28-year-old man, was fatally shot while standing at a phone booth. A male companion of his is wounded and permanently paralyzed. Uh, this act, not as random as it seemed, Rafael would be the only male murdered uh, by the Ripper crew. According to Spritzer's later testimony, they were out driving with Gecht uh, in that fucking horror show van of his when Robert told him to slow down. Gecht then took two guns from the back of his van, told Spritzer to stop the van, then opened fire on Torado and Rosario, hitting both of them. And again, Rosario survived his injuries, but was paralyzed while Torado died at the hospital. Uh, the shooting was just a warm-up act to some more sexual violence later that night. A few hours later, 18-year-old Northside woman named Beverly Washington raped, sexually mutilated, left for dead along railroad tracks in Chicago's Humboldt Park. She also will survive an insane attack and will be taken to the hospital. Those motherfuckers removed one of her breasts entirely and she lived. At the hospital, she told police that a group of men had attacked her. Despite her critical condition, Beverly Washington managed to provide the officers with some very important details. Said the driver had been a slender white man who looked to be around 25, wearing a flannel shirt, square-toed boots, greasy brown hair, and a mustache. Washington said he'd offered uh, more money than she'd asked for and seemed nervous, too nervous. When he asked her to get in the back of the van, uh, you know, she didn't want to, but he had a gun. He ordered her to remove her clothes. She quickly obeyed. Then he placed handcuffs on her, forced her to perform oral sex on him, threatened to kill her if she didn't swallow the handful of pills he held out to her. As she passed out, she saw him holding a cord over her. She thought, undoubtedly, as Robin Geck thought, that she was going to die. Later, she would realize that the men had dumped her in a heap of trash, one breast severed, the other one badly mutilated. A passerby discovered her, got her to the hospital. Despite these details, it was Beverly's description of the car that would give police the first really important lead. She said it had been red, tinted windows, wooden divider inside. Also told him there were feathers in a roach clip hanging from the rearview mirror. October 10th, Lorraine Laurie Borowski's uh, remains are found in a Clarendon Hill Cemetery, another western suburb of Chicago. Ten days later, October 20th, acting on information provided from Beverly Washington, Chicago police stopped the driver of a reddish-orange Dodge van that matched the description she gave exactly. They got so lucky. It's fucking ten days later, they find this van 
in a city that had a lot of vans. Uh, the driver, Ed Spreister, tells police that the van belonged to his boss, Robin Geck, carpenter slash electrician. The officers direct Spreister to tell them uh, or to take them to Geck's house and, you know, have him beckon Geck to come outside, which he does. They hope that uh, he's going to be their guy. When he comes out, he does indeed fit Beverly's description down to his shirt, boots and greasy ass fucking stash. Yet he doesn't seem guilty. Doesn't seem surprised to see them either. He acts like he's uh, willing to help the police out when they want to talk. Police have no idea if that means he's innocent or just, you know, considers himself untouchable. Regardless of how he acted, they arrest him for the attack on Beverly Washington. Six days later, October 26th, Geck makes bail. Meanwhile, detectives are working hard on gathering evidence that will connect him to other crimes, right? There was other murders we just don't have details for. Uh, they discover that Geck was one of four men who had all rented adjoining rooms at Villa Park's Rip Van Winkle Motel several months before Linda Sutton was murdered nearby. The manager remembered them as party animals, frequently bringing women to their rooms. He also surprised investigators with one further bit of information. He said that Robin had showed him a very disturbing and strange trick. Said he put on a juggling demonstration, kept adding more and more items to what he was juggling. Started off with some juggling pins, then added a chainsaw, then added about a dozen severed titties. The manager thought this was very odd, but as far as he knew, there just weren't any laws in Illinois against, you know, juggling titties. Uh, No, that's not what the extra bit info was. No, he said that the men had been some kind of cultists, perhaps devil worshipers. Two of the Rip Van Winkle tenants, brothers Tom and, you know, Tommy and Andy, Cocorales, have been kind enough to leave a forwarding address for their mail. So that helps investigators. Police followed up immediately, found Thomas at home when they called. Uh, his inconsistent answers to their questions earned him a trip downtown. Uh, also now put Eddie Spritzer in custody. Didn't have Tommy yet. Uh, at first, no one wanted to give any details about the crimes, but then Spritzer broke down and spilled everything. His interrogation would produce a 78-page statement full of so many gruesome details. Uh, Spritzer first admitted to driving the van as Gecht committed a drive-by shooting in which a man died. Another was left paralyzed, right? The one we talked about. Then Ed said Gecht directed him to slow down to pick up a black prostitute. Gecht had sex with her, then took her into an alley, used a knife, fuck, knife this time, to remove her left breast. Jesus Christ, put the breast on the van's floor. As Ed recounted this, he seemed upset, claimed he didn't like blood, didn't like gore. Mm -hmm. Added that during these kinds of crimes, Gecht sometimes had sex with a severed breast on the spot fucking animals. Uh, Eddie also described how Gecht had once shot a black woman in the head, chained her up, used bowling balls to weight her down right in some water. We mentioned that earlier. Believed that she had uh, never been found, claimed not to know her name. According to what he told Jennifer Furio in the serial killer letters, uh, you know, uh, you know, later in prison. Also once watched Gecht fucking batter a woman to death with a hammer. The side of that made him vomit. Uh, on another woman, he admitted to removing the breast himself though, cutting off both. Didn't throw up for that. It's probably fucking rock hard. Uh, thought she was dead when he did this, but wasn't certain. He said Gecht had forced him to have sexual contact with the woman's gaping wounds. Uh-huh. By the time Spritzer was finished sharing so many horrible crime details, he admitted to police being part of, or at least being present for, seven outright murders, one aggravated battery. His interrogators were shaken by his descriptions of the acts, but at least now they had something to hold against Gecht, who they brought back in for questioning now. In Gecht's interrogation room, detectives laid out pictures of the known victims, spread them out, thinking that guilt, or at least recognition, would show on Gecht's face. It did not. He just glanced at him without much interest, said, nah, I don't know any of them. Police then took Gecht into an area of the police station where he could see Spritzer saying something to some other officers. Thought that would shake him up. Nope, Gecht didn't waver. Acted like a man with nothing to hide. Uh, interestingly, when Spritzer, though, looked up and saw Gecht, he immediately started to change his story. He looked fucking scared, right? Scared of the devil. Now, all of a sudden, he said Gecht didn't murder anybody. 
His account became so chaotic that inter- interrogators didn't know what to fucking believe. Spritzer now said, uh, some other man. Uh, you know, wait, wait, no, uh, my girlfriend's brother, uh, Andy Cocorales. He was a killer, but couldn't offer him any details. Get confirmed that he knew Andy Cocorales, even provided police with the address. Once again, his demeanor is uh, undisturbed. Police were not buying the idea that Gek was completely innocent, though, especially when they heard what Tommy Cocorales had to say. In his interrogation, Tommy cracked almost immediately, started sharing all kinds of wicked shit, right? He said that in addition to torturing and raping these women at various locations around Chicago, they would bring them back to what he described as a satanic chapel above Gek's upstairs bedroom, a hidden place where he said the Ripper crew took women, tortured them with knives and ice picks there as well. Said that Gek had an uh, uh, altar in the attic of his northwest side home where all four of them would gather during evening hours when Robin's wife was gone to work. He said Gek even painted six red and black crosses on the walls, uh, covered an altar with a red cloth. Uh, There, Thomas said, they would gang rape women, sacrifice them to Satan. Also said they would kneel together around the altar, returning from disposing or dumping the bodies, that Gek would produce their freshly removed breasts. They'd hold various dark rituals. Said that Gek would read passages from the Satanic Bible as each man masturbated onto the fleshy portion of the body part. When everyone was finished, Gek would cut the breasts into pieces, hand them out for them to eat. What the fuck? Raw breast and cum. You don't see that on a lot of menus. Sounds like something old Yahim Kroll would have loved to try. Remember that psychopath? Remember that German murderer, rapist, cannibal, sexual deviant, producing copious amounts of semen on shit, occasional time suck sponsor? Today's Time Suck is brought to you by, once again, Kroll's Cafe and Malt Shop. Hello, fellow diners, sexy car lover. This is Yahim Kroll. I, I want you to come back to my cafe. We finally reopened our new diners in Berlin and brought the schnitzel. Hard to find good help these days, labor shortage and whatnot, but we're back. And we still have the finest chocolate malts in the sexiest cow burgers. And the best menu blue light specials. This week, we have what I'm calling glazed sweater steaks. Covered in so much semen, served with a side of ripper fries. Come on in, allow me to cover everyone's plates with copious amounts of semen. We put our semen brown sauce on everything. Traditionally a fry sauce, our semen brown sauce is quite delicious and versatile. Perfect for sweater steaks. A rich and creamy recipe, normally made in-house every morning by myself, but this week, I have the whole crew in. Everyone comes together, hail Satan and stuff. So come on down to Cross Cafe, where it's always mostly beef, I promise. I know that was pretty fucked up, but it's, uh, it's where my mind went this week with this story. Gosh dang. Uh, Tommy said he had witnessed two murders himself, had participated in nearly a dozen such breast-related fucking uh, rituals. When the detectives asked him why he had ever been part of such a macabre, illegal, and, and evil activity, he told him in all seriousness that Gek had the power to make you do whatever he wanted you to. He said, you just have to do it. He said it was conviction. Apparently, he was convinced that Gecht had some supernatural powers, that Satan had made him some kind of evil wizard, and he was afraid of what Gecht, you know, what Gecht, Satan's disciple, might do to him if he didn't comply. At one point, Tommy Cocorales told detectives he'd counted 15 breasts inside a box in the attic where Robin stored them. Thomas picked a snapshot of Lori Borowski, identified her as the woman that he had picked up with his brother for a one-way ride to the motel, and police had heard enough. Armed with search and arrest warrants, they swept up Robin Gecht, Ed Spritzer, Andy Cocorales on November 5th, now lodged them in jail. They'd already been brought in for questions, questioning, but now they're arrested and held under a million dollars bond each. Uh, a, a search then of Gecht's house did in fact reveal a satanic chapel in the, in the attic, just as it had been described by Thomas Cocorales. It was loaded with uh, what investigators referred to as satanic literature. No specific books mentioned. 
They also found at Geck's house uh, the rifle that matched the one used in the recent Toronto shooting. And when they searched Andrew uh, Kokorales' apartment, it was similarly full of satanic literature. November 7th, Andrew Kokorales confesses. He talked to investigators, tells them about how all four men had kidnapped women off the street, raped them, stabbed them with knives, razors, fucking tin can lids. How they even attacked them with can openers. So much brutality. Professor of forensic psychology at uh, DeSales University, Dr. Catherine Ramsland, uh, Catherine, reviewing the case of the Ripper crew, said that when the murderer, that when murderers inflict like that much suffering on victims before they die, it's often because they want to humiliate their victims because they feel they have been humiliated. Who the fuck humiliated these men so badly that they wanted to hurt these women so much? What are they teased by some girls growing up for being slow? Was this some, uh, you know, revenge fantasy? Andy says they used piano wire to amputate either one or both breasts of victims and then masturbated onto them. He admitted to the murders of Rose Beck, David, uh, Rose Beck Davis and Lorraine Borowski and inadvertently confessed that overall he'd been involved in the deaths of 18 women. As he described the assault on Sandra Delaware, he said that he had shoved a rock into her mouth to keep her from screaming, forced a wine bottle inside of her that made her, quote, bleed badly and stabbed her with a knife. What the fuck? Uh, autopsy report confirmed all these ungodly details. Authorities now uh, dub these sadistic fucks the Ripper Crew, nod to the infamous Jack the Ripper case in London. November 12th, Thomas Kokorales uh, arrested, bringing the reign of the Ripper crew to an end. Now all four men in custody. As the police interview more people, they learn that Spritzer and Kokorales brothers uh, not alone in their fear of Gecht or their belief that he had some kind of satanic powers. Others also claimed he had a hypnotic ability to draw people to him and get them to do his bidding. One person literally and earnestly warned detectives, please don't ever look into Gecht's eyes. No matter how sick or disgusting an act might be, they said he could inspire you to do it right along with him. How fucking weird is all this shit? I know it's a stretch, but with my scared to death mind from Lindsay and I's other show, what if? Like, what if this motherfucker made contact with something? And again, I know this is completely unprovable. And, I'm, and I'll even add that I find it, uh, you know, very unlikely. But just what if? What if while Robin Gecht was doing his weird ritualistic occult shit, he tapped into some especially dark fucking energy, somehow harnessed something that helped him bring others into this, uh, you know, dark fold of his? Could he have been working with, you know, something paranormal? Not of this world. I don't fucking know. It's such a weird story. And especially because he won't be charged with murder despite so much evidence. That is weird to me. So weird. Uh, facing multiple charges of attempted murder, rape, aggravated battery. Robin Geck is found mentally competent to stand trial March 2nd, 1983. His trial opens September 20th, takes the witness stand the next day, confesses only to the attack on Beverly Washington, right? The, the woman who witnessed him and lived. And then on September 29th, 1983, Robin is uh, quickly convicted in Cook County of the attack on Beverly. Uh, but really not much else. Before sentencing, Gecht, uh, Judge Francis Mahone tells him only a devil would do these things, an animal would not do these things, a monster would. Points out that Gecht had left Washington for dead, was lucky to be not on trial for murder, but wasn't fucking found guilty of any of the other shit. Like, still cannot believe they couldn't bring him on trial for them. They found the fucking rifle in his house that was used to kill the one guy. They found a satanic chapel they had to have had fucking evidence all over it, right? Oh my God. All the people testifying that later about the weird shit he was into with Teddy's. He'd be sentenced to 120 years in prison with a possible parole of 2042, at which point he'll be you know, almost 90, but still there should be no chance he'll ever get out. Okay, now there's still other Ripper crew members to deal with. Spritzer pleads guilty April 2nd, 1984 to murdering Rose Davis, Sandra Delaware, Schwimach, and Raphael Torado. 
why did he plead guilty? I guess like somehow like he, I guess is now saying that he shot that guy. He receives life sentences for each murder, as well as uh, time for a multitude of other charges from rape to deviant sexual assaults. Uh, then he still has to go on trial for the Linda Sutton murder because there was two counties these uh, crimes occurred in. So there'd be sometimes two sets of trials. May 18th, 1984, uh, a DuPage County, right? It was DuPage County and Cook County. DuPage County jury convicts Thomas Cocorales of killing Lorraine Borowski. September 7th, 1984, a judge sentences Thomas to a natural life prison term. 18 days later, September 25th, Thomas Cocorales, Andy, Ed Spritzer, indicted for the murder of Linda Sutton. Uh, Spritzer's trial for the murder of Linda Sutton would begin the following February. He'd appear on a, bench, uh, on a bench trial in front of a judge, Judge Edward Cole, February 25th, 1986, but retained his right to have the jury decide his sentence. Uh, Eddie admitted that he and his comrades abducted Linda as she was walking near Wrigley Field, took her to a wooded field near a motel where he was staying, then handcuffed her, raped her, removed her breasts. Then she was raped again, then left to die. And she was possibly still alive after all that, after having both breasts removed. One forensic examiner thought she'd only been dead for three days when they found her remains, even though the Ripper crew had left her in that field a week before. So she might've lived for fucking four days with those wounds. Uh, Spreitzer's public defender, Carol Affinson, presented him as an immature, impulsive, and simplistic young man just following orders. Sounds like a Nazi of a gang leader. Uh, she asked the jury to spare his life. In support, his relatives and associates testified he was a docile young man with a history of being bullied. Who fucking cares in this situation? Uh, a friend of Spritzer's, the Chicago Tribune, reported, testified that he had bragged about what he had done, though. Said he referred to the women as broads and laughed over the fact that he had mutilated and killed several of them. So he knew what he was doing. The ADA insisted that Spritzer was every woman's nightmare and one of a pack of weasels. I was like when people say weasel. Uh, thankfully, Spritzer's bid for mercy failed to work. March 4th, 1986, Spritzer convicted in DuPage County, Sutton's murder, sentenced to death. Uh, later will be sentenced to death. Uh, there's going to be more Ripper Crew trials. November 13th, the same year, citing legal errors, a state appellate court reverses Tommy Cocorales' guilty conviction, orders a new trial. God damn it. At a second trial, Cocorales decides to recant everything he confessed to before. Uh, and now he denies he killed or raped anybody. He's just a fucking nice guy who happened to, you know, walk into the wrong van a few times. He happened to walk into the, walk into the wrong attic and, you know, come on and then eat a little bit of titty that he thought was, you know, I don't know, maybe a fucking pork rib or something. Uh, he claimed the police coerced him into his confessions and that he uh, had made false promises to him, had even beaten him into admitting what they wanted him to say. Prosecutor Brian Talander uh, went through the interrogations performed by six separate detectives, two prosecutors, all of whom Thomas insisted, uh, told him exactly what to say. They're all in on it. And there was a lot of corruption, but in this case, I doubt it. Thomas also indicated that one police officer told him the details of the crime scene, you know, given him what he needed to confess. Yet when Detective Warren Wilcox took the stand to describe his interrogation, he said that he had shown Cocorales a line, of, a line of photos. When he showed him those photos, Cocorales on his own picked out Lorraine Borowski and said unprompted, that's the girl. That's the girl Eddie Spritzer and I killed in the cemetery. Uh, the jury deliberated only three hours before returning their verdict in the second trial. They found him guilty again of the murder of Lorraine and sentenced him to death. At his sentencing hearing, he once again denied the charges. His attorneys argued later that despite the verdict, uh, his act did not merit the death penalty. In addition, a prison chaplain and a counselor both testified that Tommy was non-threatening and could definitely be rehabilitated. And fuck that chaplain. Sounds like a dipshit. Counselor sounds like a dipshit too. I uh, wonder if they would have testified to that if, uh, you know, this guy had cut off uh, the tits of their sister or mom or daughter and raped and killed them. Thomas himself insisted that the court had not proven his intent to kill or any degree of premeditation. Who fucking cares? 
Uh, nevertheless, the court saw otherwise. A panel of judges dismissed the appeals, upheld the sentence in, a 19, in 1989. Next in the appeals process, his attorneys tried a different tactic. They argued now that Tommy was a killer suffering from schizophrenia. So he just, he didn't know what he was doing when he was murdering. They also claimed that his trial lawyers originally should have entered an insanity defense, but they didn't. They didn't even have him psychiatrically evaluated, which was a significant oversight on their part, or so his defense claimed. Or he was now faking a new mental illness or that. Uh, the appeals attorneys also argued that when those lawyers had failed to see the need for an evaluation, the trial judge should have ordered one for the court. A prison psychiatrist had diagnosed Tommy with borderline personality disorder and that psychiatrist found him incompetent to stand trial. But that psychiatrist was another fucking quack. That diagnosis would, would make him neither incompetent nor insane. So it didn't make sense for him to be ruled incompetent because of that. Finally, his defense argued that Thomas... Uh, you know, had been especially vulnerable to a strong influence and therefore not really responsible for what he did and get the fuck out of here. Uh, they go back and forth for this, you know, for a while in the appeals process. Uh, we'll pick back up soon with that. In the meantime, let's go back to his brother. March 18th, 1987, Andy is convicted of murder, aggravated kidnapping, the death of uh, Lorraine Borowski. He'd already received a life sentence back in 1985 for the murder, aggravated kidnapping, rape of Rose Davis. Now he gets a different sentence. He's going to be sentenced to death April 30th, 1987. Then on July 18th, his brother Tommy pleads guilty to Lorraine's murder in exchange for a 70-year sentence instead of the death penalty. He'll also now be eligible for day-to-day -day credit for good behavior under sentencing guidelines at that time. Prosecutors agreed to drop charges related to Sutton's murder as part of a fucking plea deal. I hate shit like this. I'm sure they fucking wanted to make sure he never got out of jail too. And I know it's probably way more complicated than I probably understand, but I just hate it. Now a bit of a strange interlude in the story. November 16th, 1988, Robin Geck's mom, sister, and nephew are involved in a car wreck after visiting him at the Menard Correctional Center. So he's back where he grew up. Uh, their car was described as being sandwiched between two, excuse me, two semi-trucks, which had been in a bigger traffic jam as a result of repairs being made to some power lines nearby. Uh, Geck's mom, 57-year-old Loretta, his nephew, three-year-old Nicholas, and sister Rochelle all die in this accident. Weird that Satan didn't protect his family. Or maybe he begged Satan to kill some of his family. Hard to tell what someone who sacrifices cum soaked titties to the devil might want to do in any given situation. Uh, 11 years later, more terrible news comes to Robin Gecht's family. March 7th, 1999, David Gecht, his son, and two others are charged with first degree murder in the connection of the shooting death of a Northwest Side man, Roberto Cruz. Occurred on January 29th, 1999. Uh, the crime reportedly gang related, which David admitted to when he gave a statement to the police saying he was part of the insane unknown street gang. David would be convicted of first-degree murder, March of 2000, sentenced to 45 years in prison. Sadly, he and Pops in different prisons. Uh, also, crazy that David shot and killed a dude in a gang dispute, but still turned out so much better than his dad. Uh, David projected for parole in 2044, two years after his dad. So maybe he can you know, get out and the two of them can, uh, I don't know, get up some shenanigans. Uh, backing up to the month, Robin's son was charged with murder now, just 10 days after he was charged. March 17th, 1999, Andy Cocorales, now 35, scheduled to be executed by chemical injection. He will be the last inmate to be executed in Illinois. Last ditch efforts are made on his behalf by then uh, uh, or with then Illinois governor, George Ryan. Why? What the fuck is wrong with some people? Like I get trying to save someone you think is falsely accused, but this motherfucker? Are you kidding me? Piano wire guy? Fucking titty eater? Supreme Court Justice Moses Harrison was was persuaded to order a stay of execution, uh, as well as calling for a moratorium on all executions in Illinois. In fact, thanks to a series of crusading articles in the Chicago Tribune about injustice in the legal system, 12 people had recently been exonerated. 
and removed from Illinois' death row, which had shaken Governor Ryan. Some were exonerated by DNA evidence, a few more exonerated by revelations of poor handling in the legal system. Uh, one case in particular, that of Anthony Porter, especially disturbing. Porter, a black man with an IQ of just 51, very low, according to the American Spectator, had been in prison for 16 years for a double homicide. After exhausting his appeals, he was supposed to be executed September 23rd, 1998. Then a Northwestern University professor and a death penalty abolitionist turned up uh, evidence in his case just two days before his execution and a stay was ordered. Then in a bizarre twist, another man confessed to the crime. That was clear proof that the state of Illinois had prosecuted and imprisoned an innocent man about to put him to death. Ryan pondered the situation with, uh, you know, Cocorales, but not moved to make a change because uh, in Cocorales' upcoming execution, um, really no doubt about the crimes. The Illinois State Supreme Court reversed Harrison's stay by a vote of 43, and hours before Cocorales is uh, set to exit the world, Governor Ryan issued a three-page statement to the effect that he is not going to be forgiven. Uh, the jury decided his fate, and they should follow through with it. He's going to die. On the morning before his execution, though, uh, Cocorales, still convinced, not going to happen, He's flown to a super maximum security prison in Tams, Illinois, spent the rest of the day praying and fasting, spoke to a few select friends on the phone. Why does he have friends? Uh, bids them farewell, just in case. Uh, when his brother Nick comes, he prays, he cries. The whole time, Andy still believes there might be a last minute pardon for him, even declines his last meal, thinking there's going to be another meal to come. I wonder what his last meal request was, right? Barbecued lady tits, nipple sausage, areola pudding. What the fuck with this guy? Uh, strapped onto the gurney, he offered the Borowski family an apology said that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Of course, these fuck faces almost always think that they're going to heaven. And then he receives a lethal injection at 12.34 p.m. Andrew's last words were, tough titties. I hope heaven is full of tough titties. No, he said to the Borowski family, I'm truly sorry for your loss. I mean this sincerely. He then cited verses from the Bible. Uh, Repent ye, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, more heaven talk. Fuck that guy. Then the youngest member of the Ripper crew was gone. Uh, Too bad the other three are still alive. Uh, let us now look at Edward Spritzer's death sentence. October 2002, when Spritzer was 41, he was among 140 of Illinois' 159 death row inmates, having their cases heard, influenced by the moratorium on capital punishment. His lawyer sought mercy on his behalf, saying that his low IQ of 76, his troubled history, was what made him easy for Robin to manipulate. No. Uh, the victim's families, though, then gathered and forced to oppose a change in Spritzer's sentence. As quoted in the Daily Herald, some viewed him as the personification of evil. Prosecutor Michael Wolf agreed, saying that his crimes were the worst of the worst. While clemency was not granted in Spritzer at the time, the Chicago Tribune noted that as Governor Ryan was leaving office in January of 2003, he pardoned four of the 164 death row inmates, offered blanket clemency to the rest, including Spritzer. Good job, Governor Ryan, you fucking idiot. Uh, Governor Ryan really was a fucking idiot. He would later spend more than five years in federal prison himself on corruption charges. Uh, the victim's families, outraged, vowed to fight for restoring justice, but it wouldn't happen, at least not for Spritzer, because January 11, 2003, in one of his final acts in office, then-Governor George Ryan cleared out Illinois' death row, commuting to life terms the sentences of all the state's condemned inmates. Uh, that included Spritzer, who's now serving a life prison term without the possibility of parole. He's 61 today. Robert Gecht is 68. What about Tommy? Uh, as we learned earlier, you know, he's free. Probably working at fucking, you know, yum, yum, Winchell's Donuts. Uh, September 29, 2017, state prison officials decided to keep Thomas in custody for his mandatory supervised parole due to a lack of housing. But then they couldn't hold him forever. And uh, March 29, 2019, they had to let him go. 58 at the time, right? Not even 60. This member of the Ripper crew, 
released, transported from facility in West Central Illinois to an undisclosed location. And like I mentioned earlier, as of June 30th, 2019, so, you know, it was just when he's uh, not even uh, right around 60, Thomas uh, was living at Wayside Cross Ministries at 215 East New York Street in Aurora. In an interview with WWBM-TV, Thomas proclaimed his innocence, saying, everybody thinks I'm a monster. I'm not a monster. Yeah, you are. Uh, others don't buy him being reformed for a second. Mark Borowski, victim Lorraine's brother, said his release means being on edge all the time. He told reporters that he will now be listening for voices, watching for his face, questioning everything. And Thomas, uh, he is 60. Is he too old to commit more crimes now? Or does he still have that bloodlust in him from all those years ago? Hopefully he does not. Uh, with that, let's hop out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. The Ripper crew. Huh, hard to imagine four people more brutal than Robin Gecht, Edward Spritzer, Andy, and Tommy Cocorales. Other than, I don't know, so many Nazis, I guess we recently recovered. And several past serial killers, Leonard Lake, Rodney Alcala, Bob Rodella, Dennis Rader, Charles Ng, etc. Sadly, as hard as it is for those of us who refuse to cross certain moral and ethical and cruel lines, uh, as it is for us to believe, shocking amount of people are able to get to this level of darkness. So unusual, though, for four of these fuckers to find each other, work as a team. Uh, it's almost like, according to the testimony of three out of the four, this was like a small cult, right? One leader, three followers, some of the darkest rituals imaginable. Cutting victims' breasts off, using them in sexualized satanic rituals in Gek's fucking satanic chapel. Yee! All this seemingly stemming from Robin's uh, ridiculous and cruel fixation on women's breasts. Horrific case of paraphilia. Remember that oftentimes uh, very disturbing sexual disorder? We've covered it several uh, in several serial killer sucks. I think Jeffrey Dahmer was probably the first time we covered it. Paraphilia is an intense and persistent sexual interest other than sexual interest in genital stimulation or preparatory fondling with uh, phenotypically normal, physically mature, consenting human partners. It's the experience of tense of intense, excuse me, sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors, or individuals. Dahmer, for example, was sexually attracted to specific body parts, right? Like Gecht. Uh, his were the calf and biceps. He would do shit like masturbate with one hand while holding a dismembered bicep in the other. Uh, Dr. Catherine Ramsland, that professor of uh, forensic psychology at DeSales University who shared her thoughts regarding the Ripper crew, said that Robin developed his severed breast paraphilia fetish uh, through what she called orgasmic conditioning. Basically, be careful what you come to. Maybe try to steer the orgasm ship uh, a little more back to center sometimes. Robin developed a sexual fixation on just the breast, the body part that gave him the most sexual satisfaction, and through consciously focusing only on breasts, shit started to get real weird. Somehow growing up, his fixation through jerking off the thoughts of breasts over and over became more and more intense, more and more arousing. Maybe he started off just wanting to suck on them, maybe bite them. Then one time, maybe he drew blood. That turned him on. Then more blood turned him on. And he just kept going down this path of what only, you know, made him come the hardest. And it got darker and darker. He discovered that gore and damage turned him on, pain turned him on. Maybe that snowballed to the point he wanted to literally remove women's breasts, masturbate onto them somehow insert his erect penis into them, into the gore where the breast once was. He wanted to fucking eat breasts, literally wanted to watch other men eat them, wanted to watch other men fuck them, ejaculate on them. Ah, oh, if there was ever a time to kink shame, this is it. Dr. Ramsden believes that him, him watching these other three men also have sex with the severed breasts, heightened his, his sexual obsession, um, normalized it for him, 
made him crave it much more. And quite simply, he just took his darkest sexual urges way too far. Was that his destiny from birth? Were some of his wires so hopelessly crossed that they left him no choice but to strongly desire killing women and cutting off their breasts? I don't think so. I think if he'd had more empathy, none of this would have happened. I think you have to be a fucking sociopath to pursue sexual urges like that. That he was quite possibly born with, an ability to just be inhumanly selfish. Then he combined that selfishness with his sadistic sexual fetish, his fascination with ancient sacrifices and sexual rituals, I'm sure didn't help, right? His fascination with his brand of Satanism. I mean, did he first read about those ancient rites and that gave him the idea to replicate that in some way? Or did he already want to do horrible things to women's breasts? And he was thus drawn to stories of, you know, ancient people doing something similar. I don't know. His interest in the occult, how did that factor into all of this? I I wish I knew what he read. A good deal of satanic literature has nothing to do with any of what he did. Uh, Quite possibly no satanic literature has anything to do with what he did. Uh, There are a few books called the Satanic Bible. Uh, The most popular is Anton LaVey's, founder of the Church of Satan, subject of Suck 163. And in that book, there are no passages about cutting off titties and sacrificing them to the Dark Lord. Uh, There really is no Dark Lord in that book. You are your own Dark Lord feeling free to follow your own pleasure instincts without shame or judgment or fear of punishment from some higher power uh, would be the closest this book came to re- promoting what the Ripper crew did. But you're still not supposed to bring harm to those who don't want, uh, you know, who don't harm you while you're pursuing pleasure. The core of Levain Satanism is the 11 satanic rules of the earth. Uh, the closest thing, the 10 commandments uh, to the 10 commandments for Satanism. Could Gecht have used any of those to rationalize or inspire what they did? no. I mean, the closest possible one I can see is number four. If a guest in your lair annoys you, treat him cruelly and without mercy. But those women weren't guests in his fucking lair. They're prisoners. Number five says, do not make sexual advances unless you are given the mating signal. There weren't any signals given to these guys to do what they did. Uh, Number 11 says, when walking in open territory, bother no one. If someone bothers you, ask him to stop. If he does not stop, destroy him. Well, they certainly bothered the fuck out of the many women, uh, you know, who did not attempt to bother them. I am not reading, go out and rape and cut out those titties in any, in any of that. Uh, nothing in Levain Satanism promotes what they did. A little known author, Abel Lawrence, also published a book called The Satanic Bible. There are satanic prayers in this version. There's uh, instructions for rituals, even for curses, but they don't involve sacrifice. Certainly not human sacrifice. Uh, they sure as shit don't have instructions for cutting off tits and jerking onto them, you know. Uh, jerking off onto them, eating them. I have books on Satanism and demonology. I have quite a bit of occult literature. Uh, hoped I could find some cool details in a lot of it to uh, make Scared to Death a scarier podcast. And most of it, to be totally honest, is fucking boring. It's bad poetry disguised as dark spells. Most occult literature, in my experience, is mainly about how there is no God, there is only us, there is no magic, there is only knowledge. It is not a religion, it's anti-theism the rejection of religion rather than religion. Some occult literature does involve ancient so-called pagan religious practices. And yes, there are spells and potions and shit. Most of that just old recipes that would help treat this or that developed in the days before science and laboratories. Uh, So I don't know what Robin was reading that helped to inspire to do what he did. Perhaps more obscure stuff that I just can't pick up at the Amazon store or at the local library or Barnes Noble. There are some books of dark spells and rituals out there like the Picatrix a 400-page book of magic and astrology uh, originally written in Arabic, a 10th century grimoire, a composite work that synthesizes older works on magic and astrology going back uh, who knows how far. And there are some rituals and recipes in this book uh, that do involve human blood and semen. But there are no instructions for piano wiring off a titty, jerking off onto it with three of your fucking buddies 
before eating some or anything remotely in that ballpark. Also to lump shit under this, uh, uh, like this under the term of Satanism, isn't very accurate. Uh, shit like that often just falls under a perception of Satanism tossed in that category because it seems satanic when viewed through the lens of a certain denomination of Christianity, most Christianity. Uh, I wish a list existed somewhere of the books Robin found. I, I admittedly am, I'm curious what inspired him. If anything inspired him, might've been just using that as an excuse. I think what he and the other rippers did had a lot less to do with Satanism and a lot more to do with uh, what they wanted Satanism to be some kind of rationalization for the shit they were doing. It was uh, when it was really just about control power and sexual gratification. Uh, the Ripper Crew Satanic Altar, based on the the few photos I could find, it looked less like some true satanic fucking you know chapel, uh, and more just like a like a dirty clubhouse. Some goth teenager tried to make appear scary by scribbling six 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 all over the place and putting a fucking red blanket on some stuff, hanging some crosses upside down, you know, scattering a bunch of demony looking books about. Honestly, uh, most <laughs> in my experience, most of the people uh, really into that stuff. And I'm curious about it myself, but most people are fucking nerds, not, you know, uh, brutal fucking ripper crew type people. Uh, this type of Satanism, despite all the conspiracies and rumors around it has never existed in any organized form. As far as any evidence that is out there, these so-called Satanists are just occasional, you know, uh, usually just, uh, like a occasional, like fucking teen rebel wanting to piss off their parents or the exceptionally rare, angry, consciousless fuck like these guys who just wants to feel more evil by connecting themselves to the opposite of what God, uh, you know, they were raised to worship. I think less religion, more rebellion, ultimate form of rebellion. I don't know. I struggle to try and fucking make sense of this shit sometimes. No one will probably ever fully understand why these four fucks did what they did. Uh, we only know that what they did was savage, inhumane, just, you know, beyond cruel evil. Uh, the fact that they did conduct strange rituals in a little room, they consider their satanic chapel just makes it all the fucking weirder. Now one of these monsters is free again. God, I hope he's not living near you. I sure as fuck wouldn't want him anywhere near me. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Ripper crew was a sadistic group of murderers composed of Robin Gecht, Edward Spreister, and brothers Andy and Thomas Cocorales. Together, these four pieces of shit were responsible for the murders of 18 women in 1981 and 1982. At least, you know, that we... Strongly assume they uh, killed those women that they abducted, tortured, used uh, body parts and satanic rituals, masturbated on, ate their fucking breasts. Number two, Robin Gecht was by all accounts the ringleader of the Ripper crew, the one who introduced Satanism to the young people that gathered at his house, and the one whose fascination with breasts led to the group's distinctive and oh-so-disturbing M.O. Numerous stories would come out after Robin's arrest about assault and other women that he uh, didn't kill. When with stories about how he tried to mutilate their breasts, including his own wife, uh, Rose, may have completely removed her nipples at one point. Despite all that, Robin still claims he didn't kill anyone and wasn't ever fucking convicted of killing anyone. I'll never understand that part of this uh, case. Thank God prosecutors were able to essentially put him away for life without a murder conviction. Uh, number three, though Robin Gecht was likely their leader, the other members of the Ripper crew, Eddie, Andy, Tommy, shouldn't be left off the hook right? Or let off the hook. None of them ever alerted police to what they were doing or tried to get Robin or the others to stop. They all actively participated in some of the rapes, mutilations, and killings. And a lower than average IQ does not make it okay to do what they did. And it doesn't lead to doing what they did. They were absolutely smart enough to know how wrong their crimes were. Plenty, millions and millions and millions of people with similar IQs don't do this shit. Number four, Thomas Cocorales is out of prison today and supposedly rehabilitating himself his brother Andy was killed by lethal injection. 
1999, the last execution carried out by the state of Illinois, both Ed Spritzer and Robin Gecht still in jail. And number five, new info. There's another connection between Gacy and the Ripper crew that we haven't mentioned yet. Gacy befriended Andy Cocorales on death row at the Menard Correctional Center before his execution. He called the younger man Coco. They were friendly. Uh, that's obviously a predictable reduction of his, uh, of his Cocorales, you know, name. Also the name of a famous cartoon character, Coco the Clown from Max Fleischer's earliest or early 20th century out of the Inkwell series. Man, imagine if Gacy would have joined the Ripper crew if he hadn't been caught. I mean, he was, he was into dudes, not women, so probably not. But what if he would have been a, a straight breast man? What if they added clowns to the satanic chapel situation? Five satanic clowns in a van hunting women in Chicago looking for tits to cut off. Crazy that today's story was almost that strange. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Ripper Crew, Chicago's satanic serial killers, has been sucked. So many tough titties this past two weeks. No tough titties that I'm currently aware of uh, in next week's episode. So if you're tired of the tough titty talk, I think a reprieve is coming. Episode 300. Bass Reeves on acid, tripping in the Wild West. That's next week. It's going to get weird. Uh, hope the batch I'm pulling from is a good one. A friend of mine has product tested it. Each tap, uh, tab is a uh, double dose. You're really doing acid? Oh, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be taking just one tab, but really, but it's a double dose. So it's going to be two tabs. I, that should be plenty enough to put my mind in a very dissociative state, but hopefully not too much. That's going to send me into a place where I can't read notes because the screen melts. Can we please get you a cowboy hat? Oh my God. Let's get you a cowboy hat. Okay. Will you order a cowboy hat? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's a great idea. Um, yeah. So hopefully I'll, I'll have, uh, enough of a hold on reality just to have fun with it. Fingers crossed for next Monday on time suck. When I'm going to lead you altered state of consciousness and all, uh, back in time to the wild west before Oklahoma became a state. We're going to meet an underappreciated lawman that deserves to be canonized in the elite pantheon of 19th century gunslingers like Jesse James and Wyatt Earp. He was more of a gunslinger than any either one of those guys. Bass Reeves, that name largely forgotten to history, mostly because of uh, his skin color, it seems. Bass Reeves was a black man, former slave, who escaped from his so-called master after physically beating his own uh, his owner's fucking ass during a, during a card game, excuse me, while fighting the Civil War. Despite the idiotic ideas about race at the time, Reeves, uh, Reeves thrived as the first African-American deputy U.S. Marshal west of the Mississippi. He was perfect for the job. Intelligent, Taller than most, his physical presence carried some calm the fuck down weight, and he was charismatic and knew several native languages spoken in the area. Also an expert tracker and a master of disguises. Uh, Most notably, a master horseman renowned as a marksman, winning so many shooting competitions, he was apparently asked to stop competing in them. Used all these skills to allegedly bring in roughly 300 criminals in. Uh, Brought all those in over a 30-year career. Did that without ever being hurt. Never injured despite being involved in dozens of shootouts, killing perhaps as many as 20 outlaws, at least 14. While many of his stories have been lost to time or just never recorded, what we do know of Reeves makes for a captivating tale. In one case, he was so dedicated to the law that he tracked down and arrested his own son for murder. In another controversial incident, Reeves was tried for killing his own cook, and he did kill that man. Why? Well, we'll learn soon. Why is Bass Reeves synonymous with the popular fictional lawman, The Lone Ranger? Gonna learn that too. A lot to uncover about this enigmatic hero of American history. Join us next Monday for a full <laughs> where the fuck am I sucking on a legendary bounty hunter edition uh, of Time Suck. And now for some thanks. 
Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for production and for having a great cowboy hat idea. Thanks to Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Uh, Logan, the art warlock, Keith, creating merch at badmagicmerch.com, uh, running socials with Lizzie and Chantres Hernandez. Thanks to Sophie Evans for the initial research this week. And congrats to Sophie for now being a full-time Bad Magic employee after graduating from Princeton. Uh, she has worked for us part-time uh, longer than anyone else uh, since year one, uh, since she was a freshman at Princeton. Maybe even the summer before, actually, the summer right after high school. Uh, crazy. Fun fun to watch her become a better and better human being. She was, she was already a great human being. Uh, she's become a better and better writer and researcher. And thanks to the All Seen Eyes, moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. Uh, thanks to Becky, Jesse, the Mod Squad, uh, Reverend Dr. Joe, making sure Discord runs smooth. Uh, the Time Suck subreddit has over 8,000 people, so that's fun now. Uh, Joe and I's Is We Dumb now wrapped up as far as new episodes are concerned, but the catalog should live forever online. And you can go check out Candy Dome. Uh, may we forever check for shoes. Keep an eye out for Jerry Five Bucks. And also, wake up, there's a gas leak. And now it's time for today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Uh, I had to record this uh, thanks to touring responsibilities right after last week's episode came out. So no cult, cult, cult updates just yet. But we do have a lot of Holocaust updates that didn't come in time for last week's recording. So uh, Marvelous Meat Sack Brian Fuller writes one of those saying, Hi Dan, Lucifina Sex Poodle and possible reptilian master of the suck. The reptilian thing is a rumor I'm starting right now. Spaces of Brian here from Denver. After the very dark but very important last two sucks, I thought I would share an experience of the only time that I'm sure that I met a Nazi. In 1981, when I was 23 years old, I traveled to La Paz, Bolivia with two of my buddies to climb some of the spectacular mountains there. This was in the days before digital cameras, so I had a 35 millimeter film camera to capture shots of our climbs. That's so cool. Those cameras are awesome. I mean, a lot of them. Uh, just before heading out for my climb, my camera battery died. So we stopped at a small one-man camera shop to buy a new battery. The guy in the camera shop was Caucasian in his late 50s or early 60s, spoke Spanish well, but with a German accent. The centerpiece of the wall behind his counter was an elaborately decorated shrine to Adolf Hitler with a photo of the Fuhrer at the center. Holy shit. If my camera had had a battery in it, I would have taken a picture of that fucking Nazi. Based on his age, it is as good. It is a good guess that he left Germany or Austria after World War II, headed to South America to escape whatever would have happened to him if he would have stayed in Europe. When I was growing up in rural Washington State, I knew a lot of adults who spoke with European accents, never even thought to ask about their wartime experiences and why they were in America. They were just meat sacks in our community. Were some of them ex-Nazis? Maybe. But the guy in La Paz, Bolivia? For sure. The most recent two sucks on the Holocaust were quite important in that they remind us that shit can go bad if we don't pay attention to what those in power are doing with it. If the powerful move to limit our freedom, they need to be removed, hopefully by the peaceful, uh, peaceful constitutional processes established in modern Western countries. Freedom is not granted by politicians. It is held by the citizens of the country who should be willing to fight to the death to, re- to retain it. My high school civics teacher used to say, freedom demands eternal vigilance. I thought it was a little dramatic at the time, but as years have gone by and world events continue to happen, I've come to see that that statement is right on the money. Thanks again for all you do with the Suck Dungeon, and please keep on sucking, Brian. Well, thank you, Space Lizard Brian. And yes, 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 freedom demands eternal vigilance. And I just feel in my bones that we're going to all need to be especially vigilant for the next decade or so. I think strange times are going to get a lot stranger before they get better. And yeah, sounds for sure like you met a Nazi. Jesus Christ. Open Hitler shrine in full view 
behind his fucking business counter in 1981. That's beyond fucked up. I wonder how many confrontations that Nazi got into with Jewish customers just popping and looking for some camera supplies. What a piece of shit. Now for another Holocaust update of sorts. Uh, awesome husband and sucker, Matt Perone. Or uh, I think, yeah, I think Perone writes, Oh, exalted sucker of time. Just a quick note to say how much I enjoyed your Holocaust suck. It's a topic that is near and dear to my wife's heart. In fact, I just helped her polish off a documentary she did on Holocaust remembrance for the local PBS station. It centers around the opening of the Anne Frank House on the campus of the University of South Carolina, the only one in North America and one of only four or five in the world. She also ties in parallels between the Holocaust and slavery, along with talking to survivors, relatives, and sharing an authentic Hebrew tribute. I posted a link. If your mind grapes can handle any more Holocaust use, not to mention you having time for a glance. Now for the hard part. It's a big ask. But if you do give it a look, maybe a possible shout out to her. She's the best wife and mother and all around caring and generous meat sack. Unfortunately, the effort and hundreds of hours of work she put into that show has gone unnoticed. Her bosses and the higher ups didn't even watch or comment on it. And it has her at an absolute low point. I know a few kind words from the Suckmaster himself may get her back on the right path. Brandy deserves to hear how awesome she truly is. Anyway, if at all possible, that would be great. If not, we still remain loyal bad magicians. Thanks for what you do. Your loyal sucking dumb creep. And tell Joe, soon to be donter, Matt. Uh, P.S. I've been trying to get someone to make a customized Whipple can to send to the Suck Dungeon, but not many companies are willing to make a single can. And those that are, are definitely unwilling to include the flavor citrus circumcision along with a disclaimer that consumption will cause you to manually and forcibly remove any foreskin in a two-mile radius, including your own. <laughs> Keep on sucking. Oh, that's great, Matt. Thank you. Uh, that sounds like an uh, interesting uh, wibble. And well done, Brandy. I left a bad magic comment from our YouTube channel to, uh, to the YouTube channel uh, underneath the video of the documentary you made on YouTube. And the video is, if anybody wants to go find it, a Palmetto Scene Special. P-A-L-M-E-T-T-O. Uh, colon, remembering the Holocaust. You did great. I didn't have time to watch it all, but I did watch some. Well done. It's so important. Hail Nimrod. Thanks for helping to keep the memory alive. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, very important to do, and it's, and it's a touching video. May you both keep on sucking, and I hope you can figure out that Whipple situation. Uh, one more Holocaust update from world traveling sucker Robert C. Robert writes, Mein Sogmeister. Uh, hey, Dan, I hope you're feeling better from COVID. I am. Thank you. Uh, my voice is a little scratchy. I don't know why, but I feel better. I wanted to tell you the story of how I met your mother. I mean, a Nazi <laughs> in Germany in 2017. My friend and I were on the train from Berlin to Nuremberg, sitting in the bar carriage, having a morning beer. When some dude walked in, grabbed a beer, sat across the aisle from us. He proceeds to yell, I speak English too, at us. Uh, we say, yeah, man, everyone we've met here speaks uh, some at least. Long story short, we chat with this guy who is a douche. And he begins talking German politics, which we know fucking nothing about. Uh, he hates on Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, until 2021, uh, pretty hard. Finally, he says, "You know who had the best? You know who the best German politician was? Joseph Goebbels." My buddy and I legit slammed our beards and dipped because fuck that noise. As we were leaving the bar carriage, we started hearing other Germans yelling at him pretty aggressively. We dipped out. Don't know what happened to him, but I hope he sits on his balls every day. Anyways, I hope you're feeling better. Much love for you and the crew and keep on sucking. Well, thank you, Robert. Uh, I am feeling better. Man, 2017, Nazis still around. And uh, so are people who uh, still think they're great. Dude still uh, loved the the Reich's top propagandist. That propaganda works so well, it's uh, still working on him. So important to announce all this shit. Uh, Hail Nimrod. And yeah, I hope the guy is sitting on his fucking balls every day. And finally, a non-Nazi message from uh, a smart sucker. 
Nick, I will leave his last name off for reasons that will become obvious. Nick writes in with a, a good reminder about something I do quite a bit that I, that I you know, should be careful with. Uh, Nick writes, hi, Dan, longtime fan of your comedy, fan of the cast uh, over the last year. I'll do my best to keep it short. I love your true crime episodes and I appreciate the zeal about confronting and hurting the people who perpetrate crimes against specifically children. Uh, this is a personal story to let you know what happened to my family when my dad pledged relentless violence against anyone who hurt me or my sister. My father reassured my sister and I, I'm a guy, by the way, that if anyone ever touched or hurt us, all we had to do was tell him and he would absolutely destroy them. Destroy them for us or for him, it was not specified. He reiterated this with every conversation about stranger danger. Tell him about friends' parents if they act odd. If we are ever confronted by someone in a parking lot who says, I'm a friend of your dad, whatever weirdos approaches or touch us and assault us, he will be the force of vengeance for his children. Lots of love from his perspective, but I'm emailing you to describe the story of my sister. She heard the same thing I did. I don't know all the details. I do know she was assaulted at a young age and again in high school. I still don't know and I have no right to know if it was another student, a teacher, a custodian, or a stranger. She won't describe everything and here's why. She told me openly that after what happened to her, she still understood that people go to jail for murder. They go to prison for causing harm no matter how justified that violence might be. This is child logic we are talking about. Movies and shows tell you, commit crime, you go to jail, even if you're the good guy. Our dad made it clear he would hurt or even sacrifice his life to hurt anyone who hurt us. Uh, Yeah, clearly he would sacrifice his life to hurt anyone who hurt us. However, her love for our dad outweighed anything that happened to her. She held on to a bunch of awful secrets because she knew, per his statements, that he would have gone uh, from our lives indefinitely, or would be gone, you know, from our lives indefinitely for committing violence. She never spoke out because she'd rather have a dad than a deadly assaulter, or than a, I'm sorry, rather have a dad than a dead assaulter and no father in her life. I just want you to consider this as you continue to speak on killers and parents' potentials, uh, potential actions. Kids learn more than just what the folks say. They understand society's rules. As much as parents want to do the right thing, there's a time where child logic does not sync with adult ideas about justice and results in choosing victimization uh, over the vigilante justice that means losing deep family connection. Take the story as you will. I'm just trying to share and open your ideas about how kids see the world. I'm turning 30 this year, but your commentary finally made me want to share this just in case it can help your kids or someone else's children, Nick. Nick, that's a wonderful message. Yeah, it's a good reminder. Yes, as much vengeance talk as I spew here, uh, oh man, I've, I haven't always been good about this. I've tried to get better recently about making it clear to my kids that I'll protect them uh, by like talking to the authorities, et cetera, because of what you're saying. Because I have had this message written in before. I'm not sure if I'll actually do that in real life. I hope to God I never have to find out. I honestly don't know what I would do if someone hurt someone in my family. I think there's a good chance I'd try to fucking kill them. Uh, whether I, you know, uh, want to or not, in some circumstances, I have a pretty vicious temper and, and more of a black and white sense of justice and retribution than some. I, I usually don't think this is a negative, but yes, it is here because how terrible if something did happen to one of my kids uh, and then they don't let me help protect them because they're afraid of what I'm going to do to whoever hurt them. Yeah, with your kids, you probably don't want to allude to violence that you're going to commit. Even if you think you will, you probably shouldn't. You shouldn't. Just make sure they know that you'll you'll handle it. You'll contact the authorities. You'll protect them without making them think that you're going to fucking go, you know, uh, Armageddon and go to prison for the rest of your life. Also, maybe in cases where people do revenge kill sex offenders, if the sexual assaults can be proven, could some legislation be passed to have those people be given extremely lenient sentences? I would fucking want to do that. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, you're not wrong, man. Sorry about what happened to your sister. I hope her victimizer or victimizers ended up getting punished by the legal system or by somebody. I don't know. I hope their uh, fucking dick got cut off by uh, some piano wire, ideally. And thanks everyone for writing in 
to the Time Sucker updates once again. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast in the can, Meat Sacks. Uh, please, don't, uh, please don't use any piano wire to cut off anyone's titties this week and then jerk off on them and then eat them. Just suck on those titties instead and just keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. And now uh, Mr. Suck Nasty Guy not let me put new hit song in middle of episode. I've been punished right now, even though I'm a good guy, not do anything wrong. At least you get to hear a uh, great uh, hot banger uh, at this point. Uh, Russia's Strongest Pony Boy has a new hit that I wrote and that I sing all by myself. I call this next uh, fire track Still Rock and Roll to Me. What matter with clothes I'm wearing? Can't you tell that your tie is too wide? Maybe I should buy some old tab collars. Welcome back, uh, Age of Jive. Where have been hiding out from me lately, honey? You can't dress trashy till you spend so much of my money. Everybody's talking about new sound funny guy. Still rock and roll to me. What matter with car I trying to drive? You can't you tell it's out of style. Just kidding, I'm rich. Should I get a set of white wall tiles? Are you going to cruise a miracle mile in St. Petersburg? Nowadays, you can't be too sentimental, that capitalist pig filth. Your best bet, true baby blue, confidential hot funk, cool punk, even if old junk is still rock and roll to me. No one knows rock and roll to me like me. It doesn't matter what they say in the paper, it's always been same old scene. They're new band in town, but you can't get the sound from store and magazine. Aim that your average teen. How about a pair of pink sidewinders? Maybe bright orange. A pair of pants where you could really be uh, a baby. Brummel baby. You know what that means? If you give it half chance, don't waste your money. On new set of speakers, you get more mileage from a cheap pair of sneakers. Next phase, new wave, dance craze, and the West still rock and roll to me. And fuck the United States and capitalism. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. 
Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.